We are excited for today's show. We're here at the Bomb Hole, which is presented by Pub Beer. And of course, run through a wall, smelling salts. Now today, in studio, hosting with me today, we got Mary Walsh. Mary, how are you feeling today? How you doing? I feel excellent. I'm doing great. Woke up to this nice fall weather in Salt Lake, and we're here for a really big day. I'm stoked. Well, we're so happy that you could join us. And of course, we got the infamous Silk D, the producer, running the board. Silk, how you feeling today? Best day of my life. Wow. Every Sound, day. Sounds like it with that monotone. Love it. And yeah, that, I'm the, having a great time. The guest of the hour, we got uh, Donna Carpenter in studio. Donna, how you doing? I'm great. I'm psyched to be here. We're so happy that you could join us. And we uh, have a brief description for our listeners that don't know who you are that are living under a rock. They already <laughs> probably do, but I'll read it anyway. Uh, Donna is the owner and chair of Burton's Snowboards. There are few people on this planet that have had such a profound impact on snowboarding from its inception to its current state. Donna has been there every step of the way. Of course, her impact starts with the sport itself, but her commitment to bettering snowboarding by bringing things that were once on the outer edges into snowboarding's core continues to cement her legacy, notably her advocacy and policy for women in the workspace, pregnancy policies, sustainability efforts, equity, and inclusion work, and much, much more. Today, Donna's main focus is protecting her husband, Jake Burton's legacy by advocating for the sport of snowboarding with her three sons. Donna also continues to be a strong climate activist, speaking on behalf of sustainability efforts, as well as advocating for more diversity on the mountain. Donna is a truly special leader, a diehard snowboarder, that is hugely responsible for where snowboarding is today and where it's heading. So we're going to get into all things Donna Carpenter. We are excited. Wow, what an intro. <laughs> just a little scratch of the surface. Yeah, we're just, that's, yeah, it's just a scratch of the surface. But, uh, you know, I always thought for some reason you're from the East Coast. But doing the research, I, I, was, I was surprised from where you're from. Why don't you tell us uh, where you're from originally? Nacogdoches, Texas. How's that? Yeah, a lot of people think I'm from Boston or whatever, but um, no, I'm from Nacogdoches, Texas, and all my relatives are still there. And when I was four years old, my father got a job in New York City, and it took my mother four years to actually make the move because she was not going to raise Yankee children. And one of the first memories I have as a kid is asking my grandmother if she was going to come visit us. And she said, no, because that's where Satan lives. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, my parents are moving me to where Satan lives. <laughs> Amazing. That's awesome. So, yeah, basically, what did it look like for you before snowboarding and how did you find snowboarding? Yeah, you know, I think my, so my family moved to New York. We actually moved to a suburb of, of New York, and I never felt at home there. I never felt like my values matched the wealthy suburbs of New York. I was quite a rebel, and I never felt like I belonged in Texas. And it really wasn't until I moved to Vermont, until I met Jake and found this tribe of like-minded people 
a sense of place, a sense of home, and a sense of family with Jake. Incredible. And at what point did you guys discover this snowboarding thing before it was even really a thing? Yeah, well, when I met Jake, so I met him in a bar on New Year's Eve. I saw him coming out of the men's room. He had these really cute crooked teeth. I don't know. I had a thing for that. (laughs) And um, Oh, you know what he was drinking, too? Jack Daniels and milk. Wow. Oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) And he had a wad of weed in his lip because he had a pre-ulcerous condition. He was working like... 12 hours a day by himself. Um, so the milk coated his stomach or whatever. And I was in New York City. I was going to college in New York City at the time. And I'm like, your name is Jake and you drink Jack and milk and you make what? <laughs> oh my God. So yeah, he was really pretty much alone in his barn in the back of the house making these wood planks with ropes on the end and kind of straps for your feet amazing and you rolled up your sleeves and you just got right in there right from the get-go, yeah well right? i remember the first date we had he was like falling asleep because he had been working so much and i was like oh this is great but i said so let's go do it let's go do this thing you know and so we went out we drove up to the top of stratton and he showed me this thing i remember i went flying or whatever you wore high top sneakers you know But I remember the board went flying off my feet, and uh, he came running back up the hill, and he said, okay, put my board exactly where yours was and let go, and it landed within two feet. I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. (laughs) Incredible. Incredible. So at the time, this isn't a time when snowboarding was allowed at the ski resorts. No, no. And you know what? He didn't even conceive of it as being on a ski resort. The whole idea that it was an alternative You know, it was, you're too young to remember, but it's uh, during the oil crisis. Gas was really expensive. You you could only fuel up every other day or whatever. Gas was expensive. Ski areas were getting more expensive. So he really conceived of it as an alternative to uh, going to a ski resort, that you would do it on the back hills, you would do it on golf courses. And it never really entered his mind until we had, you know, we had some young guys working for us, Andy Coglin, Mark Heingartner. And they were the ones who, they used to say, we don't like to hike as much as Jake likes to <laughs> hike. You know, they kind of grew up skiing. So they were the ones to really kind of first take it at Bromley. We used to go to Bromley at night. And say, you know, that's yeah. Shout <laughs> out to it, except except they didn't allow us. We did. We had. Yeah, airborne back. So I'm <laughs> so we'd go at night, and what I would do is I would make cookies and brownies and thermoses of hot chocolate, and I'd give it to the cat drivers, and they would drive us all night long, but. Those kids working for us really were the first ones to say, hey, you know, this could be done at a ski resort. Mm. So I, I kind of want to interject and take it back a tiny bit because I'm still blown away by the whiskey milk thing. <laughs> 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 like, wait, what? But so, you know, I think it, it's obvious you and Jake had such an incredible connection and such an incredible love. But at that moment when you're, you're living in New York City, you go there, you see this guy, like you said, crooked teeth, drinking milk, has this kind of like, like off, off uh, the normal path idea. 
what were you what was that moment were you like I'm drawn to this immediately or were you kind of like I like this guy he's a little doing his own thing but like what was that early yeah, connection for you fun fling yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know was it you know it's kind of turned into this thing you know and many you know years later, it, but <laughs> it's funny when I when I told my mother I was marrying him whatever a year later she said that bear I don't even think he combs his hair and that is one thing not a lot of people know about Jake never combed his hair not once <laughs> and uh, she was like I thought you were going to find some nice New York doctor lawyer you know <laughs> this guy That's but awesome. I think I was really attracted um, to the lifestyle too and the fact that he had a dream mm-hmm. And he was working his ass off to pursue this dream that everybody thought was crazy. Yeah, that's the thing I think about, too, is like I heard, you know, stories of you guys selling boards up the trunk of the car. And what was the immediate reaction when you have this new thing that nobody's ever heard of or seen and you're out trying to pedal these snowboards? How was that received in the early days? Yeah, I mean, some people got it. A lot of people don't. Jake is, I mean, I, I remember when he went out on a road trip with, I can't remember, 50 snowboards and came back with 55. Oh, God. <laughs> people are unloading them back on They're him? They're like, oh, we don't want this shit. Yeah. <laughs> Take it back. Damn. So it, it was hard. But then there, you know, then there was a group of people who started to kind of get it. You know, mm-hmm. but we would sell to anybody in the beginning. I remember Jake and I, we had some dealer in New Hampshire and we're like, well, we should go see that dealer. This is really early on. And we're like, oh, fuck, it's a gas station. Oh, <laughs> convenience. But the guy was into it. <laughs> Incredible. So what point did, did things start actually getting momentum? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, around the mid-80s was when Jake said, hey, I wonder if we can make this thing like a ski. I wonder if we could steal skiing's technology, steel edges, fiberglass, spaces, you know, bindings. Um, And we went to Europe because at the time that's, uh, that's where all ski production was, was in Europe, was in the Alps. And the only, we couldn't afford to go over there, but my parents invited us over for a vacation around Christmas. And uh, Jake had, I think, five or six factories he was going to talk to, and some of the big ones like Atomic or whatever. And he made appointments, and he had the plans, and he went like, hey, could you make this? And they all went, yeah, see ya. You know, a press to make a snowboard didn't exist. They were, you know, really narrow um, to press skis. And so anybody was going to have to really totally retool to make a snowboard. And at midnight, in a snowstorm, he finally got to the last factory outside of Salzburg, Austria. They had to wake up the daughter to translate... Uh, it was Kyle Ski was the name of the company, and they made skis for other company. Like they made Trex cross country skis and some of the other Austrian <clears throat> companies. So, and he never spoke a word of English, and uh, still doesn't to this day. And um, they woke up the daughter midnight snowstorm, and here Kyle said, "Hey, I think I can make this." Wow. So what, what an exciting time. So what, where did it go from there? 
Yeah, well, interestingly enough, I was not going to get involved in the business, but, um, you know, I had married him, moved from New York City to Southern Vermont. I was like, oh, fuck, what the hell am I doing here? What am I going to do here? (laughs) And he said, let's move to Europe for a while because I really want to focus on this production. I was like, hell yeah. We had both spent time in Europe. We'd both done kind of gap years in Paris and uh, loved Europe. So I said, hell yeah. And I had actually gotten a job with a nonprofit Uh, the experiment in international living, and I was going to be recruiting Austrian students to come to the U.S. and vice versa. And before we left, he said, you know, we're getting these inquiries from people in Europe who want this. Can you take a look? And the next thing I knew, I had declined the job. I was 22 years old. I said I was setting up an office in Innsbruck, Austria, and Jake's like, you can run sales and operations while I work on production. Wow. And is that what you originally, when you were studying in school, had kind of planned to go into like the nonprofit? or? Well, yeah, I mean, I had studied political science, Mm -hmm. and I think my goal really was sort of some kind of humanitarian work. That's cool. Yeah. That's incredible. So one thing to back up too, I think it's interesting to talk about, you just kind of breezed over, but the huge shift in your life moving from yeah. New York <laughs> up to Vermont. Like there's yeah, there was different, Southern Vermont yeah, too. Southern, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our, our employees used to call Manchester, Vermont zippy because there was <laughs> zip to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of love that. <laughs> yeah, how would you adjust to that lifestyle? Though? Would you like it? or, or you I moved to Europe. Yeah, you were- <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, there it is. <laughs> Amazing. So for, so then you start working, you're, you're working for Burton, you're doing production, and then how did, your, how did your role evolve over there? Yeah, so basically my job was to find distributors in each of the countries, you know, to go to somebody who had experience, you know, preferably with hard goods or something like that or clothing and and set up the distribution in each country. And did it, was it working early or was it a struggle early? You know, it was a little bit of a struggle, but I also remember it was a time where it was really taking off in the 80s here. And like, I, I remember looking for a French distributor. We had lost our original French distributor. And I remember meeting this guy who had a bunch of different brands that he that he sold. And we met at the trade show at ISPO. And I said, look, I'd really like you to distribute the product. He's like, I don't know. Maybe if you send me a few boards, I'll see what happens. Literally a week later, he called me and he said, I will take whatever boards you have in stock. He said he had sold hundreds of snowboards over the phone to his dealers. It was just at that time that people were really starting to get it and it was really starting to take off. So the growth was phenomenal. Wow. And that so that first boom, did you guys start with like a team? How did that work for marketing purposes? Yeah, I mean, we pretty much had an office set up in in the U.S. We were growing, you know, and then we set up a team in Europe. And then what about, uh, sorry, I was referring to like a team of riders. Like who are you oh, supporting? Or? Oh, yeah. Really from the beginning, we had riders, you know, in the early days. We had, you know, Betsy Shaw and, you know, some of the... The Hayes Brothers. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's OG Vermont. OG yeah. Vermont. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, so one of the first things we did was look for athletes mm -hmm. in Europe. Cool. And then who helped, you know, who helped bolster the brand from the, the athlete standpoint in the early days? Yeah, well, I was European team manager among, oh, wow. among other jobs. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> Amazing. So you're, you're getting sponsor me tapes left and right. That's probably free sponsor me <laughs> tapes. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And at the same time, you're navigating the first years of marriage and like be and, and the first years of adulthood. Like, I mean, to go from college right into, uh, you know, working on building a sport, that's kind of also just a huge jump. But you know what? Jake was always fun. It was it was a real adventure. Like we brought our dog. We traveled everywhere together. It was also a lot of fun. It was a lot of stress. I used to have what I called mini breaks. Mm. <laughs> a little breakdown for a day, step out. <laughs> stress relief. It's getting the stress out. Well, I might be jumping around chronologically, but I just want to get into a guest question. This is from Olivia Kelly. Here, here we go. Hi, Donna. It's Olivia. I have a two-part question. The first one is, um, I love watching you snowboard. You always seem like you're flying down the mountain having the most fun. I want to know what you're usually listening to. <laughs> the second question is, or I guess, could you tell me about your trip around the world with Jake and the boys? Yeah, I do love snowboarding. I mean, that's the stress relief, right? You know, it's interesting. When we were working in Europe for a couple of years, we realized we were working night and day, and we weren't taking time to go snowboarding. And that's when Jake made the commitment to snowboard 100 days a year because he said, I'm not going to lose touch with this sport. So we really had to make like almost an effort. But it is the best stress release out there. And I do rock music, and I'm usually listening to Tom Petty. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the boss. Amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> Good choices. And then Olivia, who's like a daughter to me. I love that girl. Um, she asked about the round-the-world trip. So I guess it was... Uh, 2002, we started talking about taking our kids. You know, Vermont's a great place to raise kids, but it's a little la-la land, right? You know, you never lock your door. You're kind of, everything's great. You know, it's beautiful. It's, And we really wanted our kids to see another part of the world. So we started talking about, hey, do we move to New Zealand for a year? Do we move to Europe for a year? And then we said, fuck, we want them to see the world. So they were 14, 10, and 7. And then I have a niece who I raised almost, we raised almost like a daughter. She was 15. She came with us. And we followed the winter for a year. And it was the best thing we ever did. I mean, I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be good for our family. You know, this is going to be great. But it, every day, like, talk about living in the moment, like, you know how when you're traveling and seeing a new place, you are so engrossed in the moment because it's new and you're learning about it? Every day was like that. It was just incredible. Wow. And we snowboarded in five continents. Wow. I remember, I think it was like announced that that was happening, you know, by marketing. And I remember just being like, wow, that is literally the absolute dream. That's the dream of snowboarding right there. Yeah. And... Um, Craig had recently passed, or he had passed a few years before that, 
And so we went to his partner, Savina. Olivia was three, I think. And so we went to Savina and we said, hey, we would love for you to join us on any part of the trip that you'd like. And Savina said, Craig always loved Japan. And so uh, Olivia was three, and she and Savina joined us in Japan for a month. Wow. So That's special. incredible. All right, we got some exciting news coming at you guys from Capita Snowboards. They just launched their newest board, the Capita Aeronaut. And it's designed by the one and only Arthur Longo. If you guys have ever seen Arthur snowboard, it's like poetry in motion. He's out there bagging airtime, taking small side hits, and sending them large to the moon. And this thing, I got a chance to demo it at Powder Mountain for a few runs. And it is incredible for all mountain snowboarding in terms of riding powder, launching side hits, ripping carves. If you want to attack the mountain, this is a great snowboard and it looks amazing as well it's a directional cambered board with a little bit of taper and it's inspired by arthur's approach to changing the way we look at our local resort and side country so if you want to send it into side hit euphoria like arthur check out the capita aeronaut at capitasnowboarding.com or your local snowboard shop and you know just to add you know olivia is so thankful and you know when we i was talking to her about you she was just lighting up about how you you guys, you and Jake, took her in as your own family. Yeah, totally. She always felt like a daughter. So special. And you just mentioned you've done that for your niece. Uh, it seems like it's almost innate in you to just make friends and people that are close to you feel like family. Yeah. <clears throat> like I said, you know, I created my own family with Jake and with snowboarding. And that's what's amazing. I mean, I have a couple young women who are, you know, like Olivia, like my niece Victoria, who are like daughters. And I think my sons would say they're like sisters. Mm. I'm kind of maternal that way. <laughs> that's so special. Well, going back, uh, running back to the early days, you know, I, I was always curious to talk about, you know, I was with Craig being such a big part of Burton. Um, I, I've, I would love to hear your perspective on how he helped kind of uh, skyrocket the brand in some ways. I think he changed our whole DNA. I mean, I really do. I think that, um, you know, up until the point Craig joined us, it was really Jake was there designing the boards, designing outerwear. Nobody was making outerwear for us to wear, so we had to design it. Um and he really saw that as his role. And Craig really changed that. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget Craig saying, look, I want to ride for you, and I'll ride for you, but you got to listen to me. you got to really listen to me. And for an entrepreneur who's used to doing everything and making every decision, that's not that easy. But we really made that commitment to Craig we will listen to you. We'll listen to you about the product, where you think the sport is going, you know, how we can make the sport a better sport. Um, so it really changed our whole philosophy. And I always remember think, thinking back on the kind of super interesting how there was like the the secret, um, was it the air? The mystery air. The mystery air, yes. Yep. Well, that was because of a lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, we had that big rivalry between uh, us and Sims, and 
I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but he was a shithead. <laughs> I mean, he was unethical. He was an asshole. And um, Craig was riding for him. He didn't like the uh, kind of treatment he was getting on the team. So he approached me, actually, at a U.S. Open and said, <clears throat> you know, would you guys be open? And I'm trying to act all cool, like, yeah, maybe we'd be open. Like, are you kidding me? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> um, so then Sims and Vision, who owned Sims at the time, sued us. They said, you know, we approached him, which wasn't true. And they had really screwed him with his contract. I mean, he was forced to sign a contract under duress. He was sitting in the airport with a ticket to the U.S. Open. And Tom said, unless you sign this contract, you're not going. And it was a personal service contract to Tom. So meaning Tom could sell the brand to anybody and Craig would still be forever tied to Tom. So it really, you know, the contract was bullshit. Our lawyers took a look at it and said, that's bullshit, right? The problem was we got in front of a judge who was like, you are all degenerates. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever told this story, but in the middle of the trial, Craig's nose started bleeding. And it was like the peak of the cocaine, you know. And Jake's like, oh, fuck, they're going to think he's a cokehead. And, and literally, this judge was like, you're all, you know, trouble. And actually ruled against us, which we couldn't believe. But we still knew it was a bullshit contract. And the appeals court took about an hour to reverse it. Um, in the meantime, you know, you've got to make marketing material you've got to make product and you've got to make marketing materials way ahead of the time you're going to sell it and so I remember when I was like what are we going to do with this board that Craig has designed and we're so excited about it he was riding it with a black top for two years I think you'll remember because the judge basically said you know you, you can't endorse you can ride whatever you want but you can't endorse a brand you can't endorse Burton So Jake had the idea of let's put it in a box. And he was pretty convinced that the appeals would go our way and we could unveil it. Wow. Special times. Wow. So, you know, it's funny. Like sometimes you make these marketing decisions because, oh, fuck, we're in a lawsuit. And then people think, oh, that was the most brilliant marketing (laughs) move you've ever made. You're like, okay, yeah. Yes. Yes. Those kind of circumstances can be very amazing ideas. Exactly. Uh, was it invention by necessity, kind of? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it seems like that's also, you know, for me, I'll be totally transparent. I, I'm not in the Burton circles, so to speak. We're here in Salt Lake. I don't I, I don't know the inner workings of, of Burton, so to speak, from where you guys are now. But upon doing my research, you know, talking to Mark Mick and, and Kelly Clark and Olivia and, and all these all these people that have been a part of the fabric of the brand for so long, uh, you know, the thing that just keeps coming back is like the emphasis on team. And you guys have always done, you know, rider round tables and, and brought people in that are riders and made them feel like family. That kind of seems like from what I'm hearing, it's like part of your maternal instincts in some ways, right? Yeah. Also, it was Craig's influence. Yeah. I, me- I remember our first rider roundtable. Yeah. It was in Europe. It was the year we signed Craig. 
And we got all the writers from all over the world to come and look at product and tell us what they think. Our whole mind shift shifted to say, hey, we should be listening to the people that are on this equipment 100 days a year, not behind a desk or a CAD machine, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that really became, like I said, part of our DNA, listening to the riders. And where do they think the sport's going? You know, what, what innovation do they want to see? And then they do become close friends. And, you know, you got to listen when it's hard, too, you know? I mean, I, I remember the day Craig came to us and said, you know, he was at the top, the very top, and he's of competitive snowboarding. And he's like, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to film in the backcountry. And you're like, but about uh, 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 what? <laughs> you want to what? <laughs> you know, and that was before people could, I mean, I credit Craig with people being able to make a living filming. And he saw that and he said, yeah, I'm losing my passion being a competitive snowboarder. I want to go out and film. That was hard for us to hear, you know. I remember a few years ago at a women's rider roundtable, <clears throat> I had Kelly Clark and Kimmy Fasani come to me, and our creative guy had started to use some models for our um, kind of off-the-mountain photo shoots, like if you're wearing Burton fleece or whatever, rock climbing, skateboarding or whatever. We were using some models. I mean, they were athletic, but they were models. And Kimmy and Kelly came to me during a roundtable, <clears throat> sat me down, and said, this isn't cool. You should be using us. We do cool things on the off-season. You should be... And, and it was like, I was like, oh, shit, they're right. And the fact that they can tell us the hard things, I think, um, is really special. <laughs> yeah, and oh, sorry, no, that, go ahead. So, that was such a you know, a big thing in our industry because I feel that, you know, with the influence that Burton has, you guys are the tip of the spear in terms of if you're doing X, Y, or Z, then it kind of makes it okay when we fuck, not okay. And when we no. fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a message, you know, like to be able to say, yeah. we're not going to do this. We're going to listen to these women who want this. I mean, that was huge. I, I know that made ripple effects throughout the the community of women in snowboarding to be right. like, okay, and, this is a huge win. And I think it was because I had gained the trust of Kimmy and Kelly. They knew they could come to me and tell me something I didn't want to hear as well as what I do want to hear, you know? So I think that the round table is more than just a gathering of riders every year. It's really to hear the good, the bad, the ugly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the saying too, you know, like, as Burton goes, the industry goes, I've been said, but just thinking about that in regards to what you said with Craig as well, is that you very well could have been like, this is forward thinking. I don't like this. I don't know if there's return on investment on this, right? We're we not, did say that. We're, yeah. But we said, we promised to listen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But mm -hmm. then, but so then you guys, you guys invested in Craig and, and, and continued to follow his dream and support and him. And he in that. was right. And he was right. But then, but who else? Then, then the industry follows, right? If you if you had been like, nope, we're going to let him cut him loose, and we're going to focus on contests, like that might have also been the you know rinse and repeat for all the brands 
as well, you know, so just kind of wanted to highlight that as being like an industry leader in that space. And, and I'm sure there's other brands doing it too. I don't know or not, but I think that, uh, that respect for that. That's awesome. I have a question relating to that too, because, um, over, you know, many decades that has remained at the root of the core identity and philosophy of the brand. But you also, I mean, there's so much up and down that goes over in the industry, obviously. And how do you, how do you keep that at the center while also being able to take risks and take and make mistakes and make, you know, amazing things happen? How do you, how do you, as the company's grown, sorry, this is kind of a big, <laughs> I'm jumping ahead, That's but a great question. you know, as the company's grown, how do you, how do you really keep that in the foundation and keep nurturing that while expanding uh, the purview? Yeah. I mean, I think we've always measured our success three ways, right? And we've always measured it by the strength of the brand and, you know, not doing stupid shit with the brand. I mean, I, and, and Jake really always played that role, right? Of brand, you know, I want this, this is my name, right? So protecting the brand, profitability, you got to have profitability to keep going. And we've always funded our growth through our own profitability. We've never borrowed long-term. We've never brought in investors. So I think that's been a key to our success that we've been, you know, Jake and I were making the decisions, right? And we can decide one year, hey, you know, it's we're down economically, but we want to continue to support our athletes, so we're going to take less of a profit this year. You know, we can easily make that. We don't have any shareholders. Um, and then the third part has always been culture and community and how important that is. And I've always seen that kind of as, as my role. Um, so I think it's how you measure success. Mm. Mm -hmm. so that's uh, Going back to measuring success, this is super interesting. I, I'm really excited to talk about this because if you really look at it on a fundamental level, you have achieved massive success, right? Like from creating this awesome brand that is beloved and doing what you love with it and being able to travel the world and do, you know, heli trips with pro snowboarders and all these, you know, this live this great life. Right. And, and, and also like what we're kind of taught is that success is really tied to financial, uh, you know, earnings in, in a lot of senses, like kind of societally I'll say. Right. And so, you know, in your terms of success, like you, you've, you've had it all you and, and you've lived it all. Like what is, what does that mean for you personally? Well, you know, a couple stories to tell you. I mean, I think when Jake first started, before I even met him, he thought, you know, he had a snurfer and he kept saying, why aren't they doing more with this product? Like he could see it as a sport, right? So he's young. He's working for an investment firm in New York. And he's like, I'm going to get rich quick on this idea. Not really. <laughs> and he always says, as soon as he let go of that and just focused on, I see a sport here, I'm going to focus on this sport, and I'm going to focus on the riders, everything else follows. So that's really one of our big mottos, right? Focus on the rider. Don't worry about the profitability. It will follow if you're doing the right things. And then, you know, you talked about family, right, and having a culture of a real family culture. Well, I always say when people ask me, how did you do that? <clears throat> I say you put them through fucking hell and you get through the other side 
and you're a family. It's going through the hard times. So after I came back from Europe, actually it was Jake who always pushed me into my next role. I was like, what am I going to do? You know, we came back from Europe really to raise kids. And he's like, we need a chief financial officer. And I was like, I can't be that. I can't do that. And he's like, yes, you can. You just ran Europe. So anyway, I became chief financial officer. We were growing. We were profitable. I negotiated an incredible deal with the banks. Now, we don't have any long-term debt, but we have a lot of short-term borrowing needs, and it's very seasonal, right? So we have to borrow all this money to make the product, and then we don't get paid until January or whatever. So I had this incredible bank deal, really cocky, <laughs> and it was the savings and loan crisis in 1989, and our bank, so what I had to do for this bank loan was I had to show a profit, which we did, and I had to not borrow for 30 days. So meaning, you know, we make the stuff, we pay back down the loan. I kept us clean for 45 days, you know, 50% longer than the bank had asked. And I pick up the phone and I said, okay, I need money for payroll. And they said, oh, we're a $20 billion bank. We want to be a $12 billion bank. We're getting rid of all risky loans. You're one of them. Sorry. I had to walk. I was pregnant with my first son. I was like six months pregnant with my first son. I had to walk around to about 50 people in the warehouse, production, accounts payable, you know, all about 50 people and say, you know that paycheck you got? It's not worth the paper it's printed on. You can't cash it. And to a person, nobody left, nobody complained. They all said, look, we understand this is out of your control, and we trust you. And it took me about two and a half weeks to get emergency funding, and then to finally get another bank deal. But I tell you, that was the moment where I thought, you know, if, if this happens, Jake and I will be fine. But I've got people in accounting who are single mothers with kids in daycare. I'm responsible. We're responsible for these people's livelihoods. And I think that that, you know, that's when I realized we were a family. They stuck through us. Nobody left. Nobody complained. They said, we trust you. And um, that's when I realized, wow, this isn't about us. This is about the people who work here and who are supporting us day in and day out and who trust us. And I think that's the moment I realized we were a family. Wow. Damn, that's so, that is so powerful to hear. That's such an interesting and refreshing perspective in a world where it seems as though sometimes it's like margins over people, you know, and, uh, and then look at, look at what's came of it. What a, what a, powerful lesson to hear just kind of really really cool also for a person like you know trying to run a brand myself too i'm just like <laughs> i'm literally like a sponge like this is so cool and and everybody that i talk to they always bring up you know you guys do this fall bash like and everybody talks about the fall bash i'd love to hear you talk about the fall bash and what that's all about <laughs> yeah really it started almost 40 years ago yeah. and when we were still in southern that. yeah we were still in southern vermont and you know we love vermont and you know we have such a sense of place in vermont and we really wanted to and fall is really special in vermont and we really wanted to bring our friends family and employees together 
for like a Saturday afternoon of touch football and then some food and a little music. And so the first year was about 40 people. Wow. Last year was about 1,400. Oh, my gosh. And it's still in our home. Yeah. And it's still the afternoon is set up for kids. You know, we have face painting and pony rides and, you know, bouncy castle for the kids. And then we clear out our living room and we bring in about 12 babysitters so everybody can just dump their kids in the living room. And we still have a pig roast. We have local farmers who bring, you know, now it's up to about eight pigs or something. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, that's it stayed the same, just kind of grown and always in our home. And it's really special. I had to jump in because obviously – I'm from Maine. I spent, I lived in Vermont for uh, right after college in Burlington, and and obviously the culture of snowboarding is so enriched and defined and created by Burton in New England, and specifically. And every year the Fall Bash is like the thing. Like, I mean, I'm getting excited just thinking about it because <laughs> it's like I remember going there out of college as you know a plus one and being like, oh my god, there's a chocolate fountain here. Yeah, chocolate oh fountain. That's a tradition. <laughs> yeah. I heard about. I've heard about the zipline. Oh, the zipline into is that into the pond? I haven't used that. Yeah, myself. we have a zipline over our pond. Yeah. And <laughs> the athletes will uh, show off on that. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> well, that's what's crazy too. Like when you, I I had this very not to make this about my memory, but like I had this very specific memory and like uh, scars on my hand to show it <laughs> that playing dodgeball against UC Oksanen in the indoor <laughs> mini soccer field. And freaking out, being like 22 years old and being like, I watch him in movies and now he's trying to peg me with a dodgeball. <laughs> and I feel like the fall bash like was such a special moment where you, you brought the community together, whether it's a, a Burton employee and the team or like a friend or a family member. I mean, there's something really special about that. And I even now still get excited when the invite hits my mailbox. I'm like, oh, my God, the fall bash is coming. And. It's, I just think it's like this, it's a big, it's a big thing, not only on the East Coast, but just in snowboarding. But I, I really do feel like that exemplifies the culture of snowboarding as a whole. Yeah, it's just a I agree. special day. Yeah, all ages, everybody just having a good time. Yeah. It could be raining, it could be snowing, it could be a nice day, but it's always really special. Yeah. Now, this is. I think, I think the riders love it too. Oh, yeah. I mean, the riders love just to be there and inter- and the employees, like you said, like, oh my God, I'm interacting with Mark McMorris, you know, or Kelly Clark. Oh my God. So it's, yeah, it's a great way to get the community together. And also, it's really cool that you guys, you know, open up your your arms to people to come in instead of, you know, it's a lot of times a big CEO might isolate or, you know, kind of build a castle and, and it becomes a prison in some ways. But, you know, you guys open up the... Jake built a fun house exactly. with a zip line over the <laughs> yeah, pond exactly. now, and a soccer field in the basement. That's, it's amazing. <laughs> so this might be, you may have already answered this, but just, you know, I think you could maybe have some good insight into, you know, if you're, if you're brand and you're trying to build a good company culture, like what are the ingredients? Yeah. Put them through hell. Right. (laughs) No, I think, you know, I think it was, um, I want to say like 15 years ago, I kind of had one of those moments where I was like, you know, we think people come to work for us because of the culture, but are we doing enough to really nurture that? You know, we just sort of kind of assumed, oh, you know, we've got this great culture, but are we proactively 
nurturing that culture. And one of the big things I heard from employees um, was, we want to know where you're going. What's your vision? You know, where do you want to be and how do I fit into that? And I remember going to Jake, because it's in our heads, right? And we think it trickles down, but kind of the bigger you get, the more you really need to, um, you know, bring people on board with that. So I remember going to Jake and saying, you know, this is the feedback I'm getting. And he's like, well, we're anti-corporate, so we can't have a mission statement. There's our mission statement. (laughs) 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 So I ended up calling it The Stance, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. and he was okay with that. But really, I mean, there were three parts to it. You know, the first part is what I said, focus on the rider and everything else will follow. You know, the second part was defining our values and it's we work like we ride, right? We've got to have passion, but we've got to be agile. We've got to be humble. Um, And then the third part is we ride together. So, you know, from that really saying, you know, this is who we are, this is where we want to go, and this is how you fit in, this is how we're going to help develop you as an employee, be more proactive about that. I think that that that's really important. Damn, that is deeply inspiring for me. (laughs) That's really, like, special to hear. And, you know, the other thing, there was a moment, even earlier, I think, where Jake and I faced the question, I would say 20 years ago, do we want to stay a niche snowboard brand or do we want to try and continue to grow? And I think you're either growing or dying, right? I think a company is like an organism, a brand is like an organism. You're either growing or you're dying. And one of the main reasons we wanted to keep growing was because we wanted to work with the best people. We wanted to recruit the best talent. I love working with the people I work with. They are so smart, so motivated, so incredible. So we made a decision to continue to grow. Did we always make the right decisions? No, right? Um, I'm thinking about skateboarding and surfing and you know the other snowboard brands. You know That wasn't a way we should have tried to grow. But I think that you also have to be growing to attract the best people. Mm-hmm. All right. It is time for some house cleaning for some general bombhole announcements. We have a few events coming up this year. The first one being January 6th at Woodward. We have a ride day and rail jam. Fun grassroots event. Uh, just ride with all the homies, community vibes. And then we'll have a rail jam at the end of the day for some money. Uh, all ability levels welcome. And then uh, we have... Our annual event, the Bombhole Cup, April 6th and 7th at Brighton. Day one's a bank slalom, and day two is a park showdown. Really fun. It's our third year doing it, and it's been a blast. This year, we're going to have a beginner class. So if it's your first year snowboarding, do come do your first race. And, of course, all the way up from all age groups up into pro class. So be sure to check out uh, Bombhole Cup, April 6th and 7th at Brighton. It's always a blast. We're going to have music this year, which will be really cool. Um, Another thing we got going on is our website. Uh, Be sure to bookmark bombhole.com. We're always uploading new content on there, trying to make it a destination site. And the most important news, 
We officially are launching the Brick. It's our three-pack of run-through-a-wall smelling salts, premium packaging. It's particularly for those who do not need doors. As you can see here, it says, say no to doors. But yeah, save yourself some money. Get yourself the three-pack of smelling salts. It comes with uh, two free stickers as well and some bomb hole stickers. And get yourself a three-pack of run-through-a-wall smelling salts. Great holiday gift, gift for a friend, and be running through sheetrock in no time. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about one of our sponsors, Bub's Naturals. Now, Bub's Naturals supports snowboarding. So if you're going to buy an electrolyte mix, might as well buy it from a company that supports snowboarding. Uh, they have 2,000 milligrams of electrolytes in each one of these little packets. They're vegan, no added sugar. That's really important. No added sugar. Most of these other ones are packed full of sugar. Soy-free, non-GMO, gluten-free. It's no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. They're hydrate or die Hydration packs are amazing. It's a product I actually use every single day, and I'm not bullshitting. So um, if you're interested in getting some hydration packs, I recommend the lemon flavor. That's my favorite. They're also known for their collagen. That's kind of their staple product. Jeremy Jones mentions how he always uses it to come back from injuries. Good for your skin, good for your nails. So if you're interested in getting some electrolyte mix, some collagen, check out bubsnaturals.com and use promo code BOMBHOLE at checkout for 20% off. Again, bubsnaturals.com, promo code BOMBHOLE, 20% off. And there's an element that if you, you don't try, you need, to, you need to quote unquote fail in order to keep growing and keep progressing and, you know, and find that balance. Failure is fundamental. <laughs> I mean, I think that any good entrepreneur knows that, that you have to, you have to fail. Mm -hmm. It's inevitable. Yeah. I read this book, uh, Creativity Inc., from the, the people from Pixar, and it was really their mantra is fail fast, fail early. Mm -hmm. And I interpret that as like throw shit at a wall and see what sticks and then, you know, double down on that when it does. But I'd be interested to hear you elaborate on some of your bigger failures if anything comes to mind. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh. Can I add a part B to that, sure. too? Um, and I would love to hear about how you navigated them kind of on an emotional sense, because I think in snowboarding, we're all very deeply emotionally tied to our professional lives. And how do you find that balance or separation to be like, it's okay, I'm not going to beat myself up about this? Yeah, so I really define both the progression of the company and my personal career by our oh shit moments. And, you know, I think either where we feel like we've made a mistake or we're doing things that weren't really aligning with our values and where we want to go. So I can run through those if you want. Yes. The first oh shit moment was really in the early days realizing that the sport was going in a freestyle direction. And we were coming from that East Coast ski race mentality. And they were starting to build half pipes and stuff. And, and you know, we were really behind the curve there. I think with all these oh shit moments, we not only learn from them, but then we end up you know, taking it the other way and becoming a leader the other way. So the first moment was really realizing we had missed the whole freestyle trend. Another was when we were in Europe and uh, I had a uh, Swiss distributor who got a run of boards that were defective. And so this is like 1987. All the bindings pulled out about 80% of his boards or something. 
while people were riding. Oh, my God. <clears throat> yeah. That was a moment we became obsessive about quality. We were like, this is never, ever going to happen again. And I think because you're a leader and you're a pioneer, the market forgives you pretty quickly. But we were like, we will never, you know, quality became our obsession after that. I think the third oh shit moment was we were heading in the wrong direction. Again, we had made a decision we wanted to continue to grow. And we had a leader at the time who said, let's go into board sports. We'll become a surf, skate, snow company. Thinking that we could bring our technology and R&D to those industries and gain legitimacy. We also, as you know, purchased some snowboard brands, Forum, <clears throat> Foursquare, and um, we said we can bring them along technologically, but produce them cheaper or whatever. It was the wrong move. It was just the wrong move. We didn't bring any legitimacy to those brands, and we couldn't really help them from a technological point of view. And what was interesting at the time was we're messing around over here. I mean, I think at one point we had 16 brands. Wow. 16 brands. And we're messing around over here trying to keep these <laughs> from breaking even or whatever. And the Burton lifestyle product was growing. Like all of a sudden, we never thought people would want to wear Burton off the mountain. Right, We were committed to making stuff for the mountain. All of a sudden, our hoodies and our T-shirts and our baseball caps, they're growing, especially in Europe and in Canada, where we're really two of the places they were growing. And so we're like, hey, we've got to focus on the mothership. So we did what I called Project Focus, and we divested of ourselves of all those brands. Um, and we kept Anon, you know, Anon was always our brand, um, and Jake always just thought nobody wanted to be head-to-toe Burton, you know, so they, we named the goggle something else. But obviously we kept Anon, and we focused on Burton. And, you know, again, a mistake, painful awful, um, cost us some credibility, and but we corrected. Um, another big oh shit moment for me was with women. You know, we always saw ourselves as being a really inclusive community. And I'll never forget, I think it was 2001, Jake and I were in a um, meeting of all our global directors from around the world, 25 people, two women in the room. And it was actually Jake who turned to me and said, this does not bode well for our future. I think he knew at a gut entrepreneurial level that you had to have diversity in order to be sustainable long term. And again, being privately held, we can be thinking longer term. We can correct those mistakes by investing now in our women's leadership, you know, and then another big oh shit moment was with sustainability. You know, we were always like, hey, fuck, we make, you know, a product that requires chemicals that come from fossil fuels. You know, we can't be 
seen as greenwashing or whatever. And we never really had our own auditing program. We were just like, oh, we're in the same factory as those brands like Patagonia and North Face. So we're, we're okay, you know. And I guess it was about 2002, three that um, I just really all of a sudden had a wake-up call and said, oh, man, we got to get on top of this. This is real. Climate change is real. I think our industry didn't want to talk about it. They literally didn't want to talk about it. Um, and so, again, we went from being behind the curve to being a leader. I mean, we're the only hard goods company in the world any kind of hard goods, skiing or snowboarding, that's B certified now. Um, and then lastly was more recently with the George Floyd murder, you know, kind of really, oh, shit, we have not done enough to make people of color and the LGBTQ community feel part of. Again, I think as a community, we think of ourselves as so inclusive and inviting but I think with some of these marginalized group, including women, you've got to be proactive. You know, you've got to find ways of breaking down the barriers. And so for the long-term sustainability of the company, you know, we've got to have diversity. So I think these oh shit moments where we realize we're not living up to our values or we're not doing enough um, or we've made a mistake, but then we were really good at turning them around, again, because we're privately held and we can move quickly. Um, all of that stuff, it's great to hear about that because I think it is really, it really is impactful to, I, I love what you said, define how you're doing by the oh shit moments. And um, I wrote that down. I'm like, going to take that <laughs> one with me. But I think it, that kind of stuff is really scary. But every time that you're, everyone you're lifting off, you're like, oh, and we learned this, we learned that. I had a question about the uh, bringing in more women, um, like you're saying, from that meeting of your global directors. And I remember in the early 2000s hearing that you guys had, you had implemented a women's initiative um, in your staff. And that was one of the first times I had ever heard of that kind of thing. And I, I think that was, you know, to my knowledge, very ahead of the curve. Um, can you talk a little bit about that specifically and what that entailed? Because that is very powerful in setting a pace in the industry, I think. Yeah, again, I mean, Jake turned to me and said, this is not going to bode well for our future as a company. Can, can you do something? And, you know, once again, I think my personal philosophy is, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, I'll figure out how to do it. And so we really looked at how do we recruit more women? How do we retain the women that we have? And how do we promote more women into leadership? And it took years you know, I mean, you put your head down and you work. And, um, you know, we figured out how to recruit more women. And, you know, there was a backlash a little bit. People like, oh, you're going to put in quotas. And, you know, and it's like, no, we're fucking not going to put in quotas. But every time we have a leadership position, you're going to make sure you have a woman as a finalist. And, it's really easy to take resumes and, you know, get all these resumes from guys. you got to go out and find a woman who's equally qualified. And how do we retain them? And that, a lot of that had to do with maternity and post-maternity and being more progressive on that. And, um, you know, really, uh, and, and then giving people advancement and development um, opportunities. You know, we did things like we have, uh, you know, I realized if a woman is in a high-powered job in marketing, sales, or product, 
they have to travel for their job, right? So we have a policy where for the first 18 months of your child's life, and you have to travel for your job, you can take a caretaker with you, or we will pay for a caretaker at home, you know, eliminate that that barrier. The other big thing was mentoring. Women really craved mentoring because, like, I think if you're in a room full of guys, that kind of happens naturally. You're like, hey, let's go get a beer. Let's go play golf. Let's, you know, take some runs together. So, we again, we had to be more proactive um, with women. And there was a backlash from the guys, like I said. But then all of a sudden they realize, oh, my God, I'm getting these benefits. We're getting child care subsidies. I'm getting paternity leave. You know, and, and I remember at one point they came and said, hey, we want to be part of the mentoring program. So now it's very much co-ed and global. And, you know, if you'd ever asked me, would Burton have become a mentoring culture? I would have said no way. But because of the Women's Leadership Initiative, we did. So then men really started to see the value. So we went from under 10% of our leadership being women to over 40. The senior team is 50-50. And women in very non-traditional roles, I always like to say, you know, our HR and um, our foundation are run by men, <laughs> and our chief commercial officer is is a woman, you know. Um, so I think it's made it a stronger, better company. Oh, yeah. I mean, you hear about it from the rider level on up. It's like getting diversity within staff increases the quality of the product and quality of the, the user experience, the rider experience, the ads, everything across the board. You have to have women in decision-making roles to reach that women's market. And that was one of the advantages I had with the company. I could say, guys, look, we do a good job with this. We're going to do better at the women's market. We're all going to be happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting, too, talking to Kimmy, which it seems obvious and like rudimentary really thinking back but she, she was one of the first women from what i understand to have pregnancy written into her contract for snowboarding she, first i think professional athlete okay yeah, wow. yeah this was a huge of moment any okay. sport okay. yeah yeah and um and honestly i mean i i was ceo at the time i was the decision maker i'm a woman i know what it's like yeah, I mean, I remember when Kimmy called me, and we're really close friends, and she was kind of mumbling. I'm like, what is she's trying to tell me something? What is she trying to tell me? And I was like, oh, my God, you're pregnant. That's great. And she said, yeah, but my contract's up in two months. And I said, we're not going to change your contract. And it was at the same time um, Alyssa Montero, I guess it was, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying, Nike tells you to just do it until you get pregnant and criticizing Nike for not having um, a policy. So I really credit Kimmy, again, being able to come to me like, hey, what are we going to do here? And my first instinct was, of course we're going to support you, you know? I don't know if that would have happened with a male CEO. I don't know. I'd like to think so, but I don't know. I think in those things, and, and I'm, I'm not a parent, but I know, um, I mean, the, the ramifications of having to take time off, whether you're an athlete or even behind the scenes in the industry, when you're pregnant and you can't go on hill, and that can be a very scary um, concept. And 
it can put everything that you've worked for for decades in jeopardy or feel like it is. And so even to come out for her to say that and be able to approach that topic, I feel like created such a tidal wave of change. Yeah, it really did. I mean, again, we were leaders in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how and you guys I credit, handled it. Yeah, and I credit her too. Well, uh, you know, this may be a little bit out of chronological order for what we're going into, but, you know, who gives a shit? We're having a free-form conversation. <laughs> so we have a guest question from uh, the legend, none other than Kimmy Fasani. <laughs> Here we go. Hi, Donna and the whole Bombhole crew. This is Kimmy Fasani. I'm really excited for this episode, and Donna, I'm so excited to be asking you a question. As you know, you've been an incredible mentor, supporter, advocate, and role model. You've helped me navigate so many of life's challenges, injuries, motherhood, and last year at my last chemo treatment, you showed up and took my family and I on a surprise trip to Bald Face Lodge. Getting back on my snowboard was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It was invigorating and energizing and so uplifting. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences in navigating challenges with Jake and how healing getting back on your snowboard was? You shared this with me up at Bald Face, but I feel like it would be really helpful and uplifting for the rest of us to hear. Thank you for everything that you do. Snowboarding is so lucky to have you as a supporter and the community that you've helped build. Have a great rest of your interview. (laughs) Love her. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more healing than snowboarding. I mean, I think I was probably talking to Kimmy about after Jake's death. I think I rode every day that I could. I was riding five, six days a week because that's the place where you go to feel whole and to feel freedom and to feel his spirit and to be in the moment. So, you know, snowboarding is more than an activity, it's spiritual. Incredible. Wise words. Now, can you uh, elaborate on that story of, I know you guys were both a part of this. I'd love to hear you guys talk about this, of, of Kimmy going to bald face. Oh, I love this story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you were at the party I had to put together. <laughs> you know, actually, it was her husband Chris's idea. I give him a lot of, you know, I give him the credit. So... I was in California, Encinitas, where uh, one of my kids lives, and he called me and he said, I know you're going to Baldface. We had a, we've always had a tradition of taking all the Olympians backcountry snowboarding after the Olympics to remind them of what snowboarding is really all about. And so we had lined up to take all the Olympians, you know, that were on Burton from all over the world up to Baldface. And Chris called and said, what about taking Kimmy? And I was like, yeah, she's healthy enough. She had just done her her last chemo treatment, and she was in Encinitas where she was getting the treatment. Chris and the kids were up in Mammoth. So he said, you're going to have to keep Kimmy in Encinitas for a couple days. And I'm like, how am I going to do that? And he's like, tell her you need to talk business on Friday. I'm like, she will never (laughs) believe that, right? So I actually called Mary and Shannon Dunn, and I said, let's say we're having a party for Kimmy to celebrate um, the end of her chemo, and then I want to do a spa day with her the next day, and then I'll fly her back to Mammoth. 
And luckily, Kimmy was like, hell yeah. 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 I'll celebrate. Yeah. And also, to, but then she had no idea. She, None. She, what she thought was that... Um, she thought that Chris was going to surprise her with a Hawaiian vacation. Yeah. So she literally, I went over to her house. This is a couple of days before that. And we were hanging out and she's like, I just went and got like a couple new bathing suits to kind of, <laughs> you know, go on this trip because she was going through so many like physical changes from the chemo. So she was like, that, that was a big thing just to do that, you know? And, and she was like, I don't know where he's taking me. He won't tell me, but I'm pretty sure it's Hawaii. So she had no idea. Yeah, so I said, hey, listen, I can give you, um, we can fly back to Mammoth together. And she still had no idea. <laughs> and we're on the plane. I'm like, so are you really riding a lot? Like, I started to worry, like, does she really have the strength? And she really did. So then we landed in Mammoth, and Chris and the kids and Chris's mom were all there, and they're like, we're going to Baldface. And it's funny because, you know, a champion, a person like Kimmy doesn't like to be out of control, right? She's like, oh, my God. But, yeah, so we surprised her and took her up to Baldface with everybody. It was amazing. And Baldface made an exception and let her kids come. It was so cool. And I think what was really cool for me, because I didn't know about the, the like, when you told me about the surprise part, honestly, the excitement and the joy in your voice and sharing <laughs> that, I think, again, was just like, a testament to the relationship that you have with Kimmy and with the writers um, and that you guys all, that you and Jake fostered, because that's, that's an incredible thing to be able to give to someone and to, for her to feel so whole through that experience. Yeah. What a thing she's had to go through. Yeah. Incredible. So she's a role model and inspiration for me too. works both ways. You guys are some legendary humans. I love to hear it. Uh, so going back, another thing just in in regards to some of the, the women's topic here too is you guys were revolutionary in women's products, you know, especially the landscape was obviously male-dominated for snowboards for, I mean, still in a lot of senses is. And uh, I would love to hear you guys kind of evolving, talk about evolving women's products. Yeah. So, I mean, the other way that we were really always a leader was in equal prize money and, oh, yeah. and pay for mm -hmm. women. I mean, I remember it was, I don't know, like 1987, U.S. Open. The first women were competing. And I remember saying to Jake, what are we going to do about the women's prize money? And he said, well, why wouldn't we just pay them the same? So, I mean, I think snowboarding is so unique in that it's the same course. They're riding the same stuff, and they're getting equal pay, and they're getting equal prize money, which I think is great. Um, and I think, you know, there was a sense. I mean, it's interesting. I remember when we really started to develop women's product. I went to some of the team riders, and I'm like, look, we're starting to develop women's product, but you're wearing AK extra large, you know, baggy shit. And they really said, you know, to play with the big boys, we got to look like the big boys. There was kind of this pressure not to stand out and not to have um, different product. And I think this generation has very much changed. You know, it's changed over time that... I think women now feel comfortable expressing themselves differently than men and, and being authentic um, about it. But, you know, it was the, it was the same idea. We're going to use the women to develop product. And then you start diving into things like 
you know, I'll never forget Shannon Dunn telling me she was too intimidated to go into a core shop. And I thought, oh, my God, here's a bronze medalist snowboarder who's too intimidated to go into a core shop. So we have a whole ecosystem. So we have to start working with the retailers. We have to start working with the mountains, you know, instruction, you know, getting more female instructors. I mean, it's an ecosystem that you've got to work on. It's not just product. But, um, and, and I think there was something a little broken in the beginning with the women's feedback. We were pinking and shrinking. I'll admit it. <laughs> you know, we were taking a men's style and making it a little smaller and making it a different color and saying, here, don't you like it? And so again, it had to do with hiring more women who was who were going to be making decisions in product, both creative and, and product development, and splitting them out. Saying, look, this is women's development, this is men's development, and they are going to be separate, and you're going to be listening to the women on this side and listening to the men on that side. Mm. And you would host the women's and Jake would host the men's, right? Yeah. Yeah, super yeah. interesting. And kind of bringing that around full circle, I think, to touch on the family tree a little bit, because that's a genderless product, but there are boards. I know, I'm like, you can't no. fucking win. No, they, <laughs> now everybody wants unisex yes. or no. whatever, you know? It's no, it's, we're, very, we're very cyclical. But I think that that is still, the ethos of that is still ingrained because, um, like, for me, like I'm five two, you know, that a lot of times traditionally there weren't a lot of those really cool shaped boards or really interesting things. You couldn't ride them if you were on either end of like kind of the size spectrum. Right. And so now you do have this, this, this line has grown. I feel like it's, I mean, from a consumer standpoint, I don't know, but I feel like it's incredibly popular. Yes. You know, and it has that, that. And group you know of what? Like I that. shouldn't, you know, it really is designed as unisex and, you know, same with like our analog line. That's a unisex line. You know, it's not just men's and say here, take a smaller size. It is developed specifically as unisex. Yeah. And that's, I feel like very powerful in the industry for product right now too, to, it gives a lot more choice, but it's, but it seems like when you, even when you're creating that, you're still, Really considering, I would imagine, yes. women and men and everything going into that. Totally. Yeah. I hear it when we don't have, you know, sizes small enough on the boards. Why are you starting at 155 or whatever? I, I, I hear it. You know, this is an interesting topic, too, uh, in regards to this, because we just recently talked about uh, some product on one of our shows, Group Chat, and it came up. Um, Maggie Leon was mentioning that she had she was really into the Burton uh, Love series uh, back in the day, and she had it all over her wall. And then she was saying, you know, like you guys had all kinds of protesters, and you had to go out in front of the protesters and essentially like stick up for Burton and things like that. And I'd love to hear your side of the story since we just freshly talked about that. Yeah, oh, my God, the love controversy. (laughs) You know, that was kind of a painful experience because, I mean, first of all, you've got to understand the context. It was October of 2008. The entire global economy is melting down, right? Banks are going under, right? We don't know what does that mean for us. Is our fucking bank going to go under? Are we going to have to lay people off? And they care about what? This board? Like, are you kidding me? So, you know, again, by that time, we did have women making decisions about product and stuff. So we did have a process for, you know, if the if 
the men were doing a product, women would see it, make sure it wasn't considered misogynistic, right? That was really important to us. And they did this collab for with Playboy. And when I first heard, I thought, no fucking way, right? And then I saw the boards. The models are from the 60s. They're well fed. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see anything. They're not really, I mean, it was kind of kitschy and funny, you know? I mean, which is something true pornography is not funny or ironic, right? And so I said, you know what? These are fine, but put them in a black bag so that a mom shopping for a board for their eight-year-old son doesn't have to look at these, right? So we put them in black bags. And it was in Vermont that this just kind of protest started to build. And we didn't really respond to it because the people were who were complaining were not our customers, Right? Like, if you had been bitching about something, we would have responded, right? Like, uh-oh, our customer is, doesn't like this or whatever. But these are middle-aged women who are never going to snowboard. And we're like, fuck it, we just put out a statement. And it grew, and it grew. It was nuts. I mean, it was in the press. They started to go to, like, organizations that I worked with, women's organizations that I work with, and say, you can't have her. Like, I was supposed to speak in front of the Vermont Women's Business Group, and they were picketing. And I'm like, okay, this is nuts. And we finally spoke, I finally spoke out. You know, I finally got up and said, look, these boards are not offensive. They have a sense of humor. You know, this is not misogynistic, and this is crazy. And as soon as Jake and I, you know, we did a bunch of interviews, as soon as we spoke out, it kind of all died down. So one of the big things we learned was you can't just ignore something like that. It starts to build its own crazy momentum, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I don't know. Jake always said, hey, when you're pushing up, up, you know, against the line, Every once in a while, you're going to cross over and say, oh, we shouldn't have gone that far. But I didn't feel that way with those words. Actually, I wrote it all year. (laughs) (laughs) And I used to love to see, like, the 14-year-old boy's face looking at the board, looking at me, looking at the board, looking at me like, this woman is writing that board. So, I, yeah, I named her and I wrote her. (laughs) (laughs) What was her name? Leslie, because that was the woman who was giving us the most. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Leslie. That's gangster. So, uh, you know, on on the lines of products, too, I'm I'm super fascinated with your guys's your guys' products, you've done so many like collaborations and capsules and and things like that. Like, what is your favorite product or board series that you've worked on over the years with Burton? Oh, that's tough. I mean, there have been so many great ones. I, I think probably my favorite over the years was the Rise Snowboard when Kelly Clark retired and we wanted to do a special board and it was the first time I had a rider say, I want to design it with you. And I was like, wow, that's fucking cool. Like you said, like you find, oh my God, Kelly Clark wants to do a board with me. And um, so 
my goal with the board was to make it the most sustainable board that we had ever done using materials and glues and stuff that we, you know, had been using on a small scale. Um, and then she got to design the shape, and together we picked the graphics. Um, so that was really special, and it's a great board. Shout out to Kelly and the Rise. Perfect. Yeah. Well, good timing. We happen to have a guest question from Kelly Clark. Uh, <laughs> so here we go. Hey, Donna, it's Kelly. Um, they asked me to do a guest call-in question for you. And um, my question would be, you know, Burton is known for being innovative and one of the most recognizable snowboarding brands on the planet. Um, there's a lot of attributes that people really know can identify with the brand, but what would you say is the thing that you're most proud of at the company that doesn't get talked about a lot or the thing that maybe you had the most fun building when looking back, you can say, yeah, this is actually uh, something that is near and dear to my heart. That's incredible. That really doesn't get talked about. Yeah, the rise board. <laughs> yeah, she's such a product head. No, I mean, I would say under my leadership, starting when I was president and then CEO, so, you know, 10 years ago or so, I really saw an opportunity to pivot the company from being product-led to being purpose-led. And I really felt like consumers wanted to see behind the scenes, behind the brand. What, what are your values and prove it to me, right? And we had so many incredible stories from our sustainability. I mean, I, I, I like to say we're better than Patagonia on that shit and don't get the recognition for that. Our women's story, whether it's you know internally or externally, um, our Chill Foundation, you know, the way we give back to snowboarding, the, the investment we make into the sport and how we care about the sport. And so I, I was really like, that. those are the stories. I mean, yes, we need to make continue to make the best product and quality and innovate. Innovation is very important. But let's tell our story holistically. And let's give people a peek behind the curtain because what's behind there is really substantial, right? So I, I see that as probably my greatest contribution to the company is pivoting to that purpose-led, and we define it as people, planet, and sport. What are we doing for our people, including the customer? What are we doing for the planet? And what are we doing to protect the future of this sport? Um, so, yeah. Dude, that's so cool. And I'll say this, even just to, to kind of validate what you said, I'm actually learning that about Burton by doing the interview with you, which is cool, you know. I, I'm not gonna say I was a a Burton a ha hater. hater. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna use those words. <laughs> I, was a, I was. A, I was. I'm an out, I felt like an outsider. I felt like an outsider. Like I was outside the world. So, uh, wow, really, really powerful. Now you're stuff. part mm -hmm. of the Burton family, Chris. Yeah. Now I'm in. Now, <laughs> now I'm in. you're in. Yeah, who, who knows? Maybe we'll get the fall bash invite. You never know. You yeah, know? I got a plus one. Oh, you got a plus yeah, one? You can, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's one thing we, we do have to talk about, uh, and that's the Boston Celtics. So um, I think it's really uh, really fun to talk about being from – I'm from Massachusetts. You're an East Coaster. Uh, grew up – It's had season tickets, my dad and my uncle. So every other game when I was a kid, you know, 
Antoine Walker, Paul Pierce era, you know, really, really fun. Um, but I, I'd love for you to talk about your love for the Boston Celtics. Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned kind of with my roots that, um, I was from Texas and then my father got a job in, uh, New York and part of his job was running Madison square garden. So he oversaw the Knicks and the Rangers when I was growing up. So we went every Tuesday and Saturday night to the Knicks and every Sunday night to the Rangers. So I had this incredible love for, and then he would take, my dad would take me to Mets games and, and we were football fans. I mean, we we're just a sports family. I think that was one of the things Jake loved about me too, is that I was sort of as big a sports fanatic as he was. He he, you know, he loved any kind of competition or whatever. We'd be in New Zealand and he's going to the rugby game, you know. So, yeah, so um, I remember I had just married Jake. It was like 1983, I guess. And uh, my dad said, hey, I'm getting together with some investors. We're going to invest in the Boston Celtics. Jake was like, no, I'm a Nick fan. You can't do that, right? <laughs> yeah, then you start going and you get to go to the locker room after the game and all of a sudden, okay, I can do this, <laughs> right? And that was like the Larry Bird days. They won a couple championships. And, you know, my family sold it about 10 years later, but we stayed fans, right? And so we ended up getting, I, I think it's almost 30 years ago, we got season tickets and diehard fans and what's really cool is we uh when we don't go we lottery it out to the employees i think they would say it's probably one of the greatest perks i actually remember when we announced to the company that we were going around the world for a year we said are there any questions one question do we still get Celtic tickets? <laughs> We're like, really? That's it. Only the important stuff. That's it. That's your only question. Um, yeah, so it's always been um, a love of ours, and we've always been rooting for the team through through thick and thin, and I think I can tease it out. We've got a, a collaboration coming up with the Boston Celtics. Wow, let's give that an air horn. Yeah. <laughs> So it's their 77th season, and, you know, 77 is an important number to us because that's the year Jake started the company. So they're going into their 77th season. We've been diehard fans, so we went to them and said, hey, can we do a collaboration with you? So they actually allowed us to use the parquet floor that the Celtics won the 2008 championship on. We literally Ooh. sent a team down there to pick up the floor. Wow. And we built the boards at our facility, our Craig's facility in Vermont. Uh, we made 77 of them. And uh, 13 of them are going to be randomly signed by a superstar. Wow. Can't give that away. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I'm really excited about that. That is cool. That's always incredible when two worlds collide like that. Yeah. There's going to be people going bonkers for yeah, that. Yeah, that is so <laughs> sick. Fun. 
Yeah, that's cool that you guys get to do that. Can stuff. we get you on a burden just like for the Celtic board? Yeah, maybe like, we'll, 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 yeah. Call, we'll call it Capita. You know, maybe, who knows? Maybe we'll, just do, we'll throw in the towel. A little or, waiver. Yeah. 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 Well, just a little exception. Exactly. Just a little waiver. <laughs> that could be a clause in a contract. I can ride this one board. This could actually be kind of like a. It's got to be a Celtic board. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this sounds like a Craig Tilly uh, Sims debacle, is what we got going <laughs> here. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like we're getting our hands in a whole situation here. <laughs> Um, cool. Well, another thing, you know, there's so much stuff to talk about, so I just want to I keep moving too, because you know things that get brought up a lot are Burton and its its deep roots with the U.S. Open. I'm excited. That's what yeah. I've been running in the back Go, of my head. Yeah, run it up from here. Oh man. Okay. So, well, U.S. Open, obviously, for anyone that grew up on the East Coast, it was so formative. Um, you know, like uh, just in what snowboarding was bringing all oh, of man. the best riders to Vermont and you mm-hmm. could access them as an up and coming spectator, as a snowboarder. Um, and then I would love to hear about just that kind of growing kind of parallel and along with the, the company growing. And then of course we got to get into it going to Vail and, you know, no longer being with us. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was really important, um, to us from the beginning to showcase snowboarding in the best possible way, right? I mean, that's what I'm most proud of, I think, with the U.S. Open, is that we provided those riders with a venue to really showcase their skills. We won't talk about Olympic half pipes and how those have, like, sucked and, you know, not showcased. So anyway, that was always really important to us. And then again, there was an incredible vibe, right? Like it was almost like a festival. You know, you'd go to Stratton and you'd have, you know, it was almost like a dead show or whatever, oh, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. And um, and it grew and it grew and it kind of outgrew Stratton. And I mean, I give Stratton a lot of props for being the first major resort to allow snowboarding and their support of the open, but they had really stopped supporting it. You know, they kind of put us in the back of the mountain. They weren't marketing and whatever. And Vail kept coming to us. And I think Vail wanted to counter Aspen. Aspen had the X Games, right? So Vail was like, we need something comparable that's going to attract that younger visitor. And we always spent our winter vacation in Vail with our kids. We loved to ride that mountain and kind of felt like a second home to us. But it was probably two or three years. They kept coming and saying, you know, we want this. And then they kept kind of upping the ante, like, we'll do this, we'll do this. And finally, we were like, yeah, you know what? To really, you know, it had outgrown. And also, like, getting the riders to Stratton, globally was really tough the logistics were tough Mm -hmm. hotels were tough yeah you know that it it really was so it was great and and it was great at fail and you know for me personally the 2020 u.s open is something i'll never forget you know after jake died um and watching i mean for those of you who don't know what i'm referring to it's in the dear rider movie But at a break during uh, the U.S. Open in 2020, you had hundreds of riders from over the last 40 years poach the pipe in his honor. And it was just one of the coolest things, you know. I mean, 
Jake loved the poaching as much as as anything else, you know, mm-hmm. that that spirit of snowboarding. So then the pandemic hit. And I should also say, Jake and I spent the last year of his life, 2019, living in Switzerland. We really wanted to kind of go back. You know, our kids were all sad. We really wanted to kind of go back to Europe um, for a year. So we were living in Switzerland. And we went to the Bang Slalom, Mikkelbang's uh, competition mm-hmm. up in Norway. And it was like all ages, all abilities doing, you know, a bang slalom. And it had that feeling. It had that feeling like Stratton did, where everybody's just having fun and a good time. And you have beginners, but then you have, oh, my God, you have these amazing pros. And I remember Jake saying to me, you know, this is the feeling um, that we want to capture, you know. And so when the pandemic hit, we really had a chance to rethink, okay, what do we want to do um, for the sport, for an event? Do we keep the open going? It's very expensive. You know, it's, you know you're never going to get enough sponsorship to cover all the costs. And Vail wasn't exactly pitching in anymore. <laughs> I call him our anti-partner. Um, <laughs> and... Um, Oh, yeah. And so we said, we kind of looked at the overall landscape of snowboard competitions, and we said, we need more grassroots. We need more bang slaloms. And it had lost, first of all, it had stopped being a true open, because a true open is where anybody can show up and start competing on Monday in the qualifiers mm-hmm. and end up in the finals against Sean White by the end of the week, mm-hmm. right? But when you're, you can't do that at a place like Vale. It's too exclusive. It's too expensive. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things, for example, I heard in Europe when I was there in 2019 was the U.S. Open is no longer relevant to us because we can't get over there because we've got to go for qualifiers and then back again. And that's just not realistic. So it had actually lost some of its global appeal. And I said, during the pandemic, I said, we got to rethink this, you know, and we had the time to do that. And so what we came up with is the mystery series. And, um, you know, the whole idea is a more grassroots, accessible, all ages, fun weekend, and global, you know, we can have it in Japan, China, all over Europe, and in the U.S. Will there ever come a time when we do a culminating event again? Maybe. I don't know. I wouldn't rule it out. But for right now, that's really our focus. Mm. Yeah. I love that maybe. Because <laughs> 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 I, like I think the, the U.S. Open and the Open Series – they were very, they were so impactful on so on so many levels, and it also was during such a that and the TTR and the um, Global Open Series champion, and it was really a pretty incredible time in contest snowboarding in general. I think, and when you think kind of bridging to like you know contest snowboarding, the landscape right now, the Olympics are obviously so much heavier in terms of the schedule and the sport. Where do you think we are right now? What are your opinions on where I, we're at? I worry about it. 
honestly, it's something that keeps me up at night because I think, you know, the era that you're talking about was the era where we let the riders drive the sport, right? They showed us what they wanted. They were the ones who, who were progressing it and driving it forward. I really worry about that now. Is the half pipe irrelevant? You know, is a super pipe becoming more and more irrelevant? I remember I was in Finland not too long ago, and I was at this academy where, you know, this snowboard academy where um, a lot of the big names from Finland have trained, and they have a very healthy snowboard academy. And they had an outdoor pipe, and they had an indoor pipe. Not one kid was doing pipe. They all wanted to do slope style. It's more creative, it's more expressive, it's more individualistic, or whatever. So I, I, I worry about what the future, and I don't know if you saw, like, on the last U.S. Open in 2020, we tried a different shape mm-hmm. just to say, all right, what can, you know, what can we do here that's different? But I worry with too much fist control. I Hate fucking fists. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd love to hear more. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm bringing back the fuck fists <laughs> stickers. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people know this. We never wanted snowboarding in the Olympics. You know, it was it. I think what happened again. I think that the IOC was threatened by the X Games, right? So you're talking about mid late '90s. And the IOC sees the popularity of the X Games, and no young people are watching pairs ice skating or whatever in the Olympics, but they're all tuned in to the X Games. So they never talked to us. They never talked to the World Snowboard Federation, which was alive and well. They never talked to any athletes. They just made a unilateral decision. Snowboarding is in the Olympics. And then they said, and you're going to wear this uniform, you're going to have this coach, you're going to have this sponsor, they're going to run it like the ski team. And everybody went, I don't think so. You know, and the riders, the good riders boycotted. We sued USSA. It was the first time I remember us ever proactively suing somebody. And we sued them and said, you can't do this to this sport. You can't turn this into skiing where nobody knows their names. You know, snowboarding is all about creating heroes. I mean, what happens with skiing is they're all in Europe for the whole winter, right? So no American kid ever gets to see and relate to a skier. We want these riders to ride wherever the hell they want and become local heroes. And um, yeah, so you know, we did settle with them because they, I mean, it wasn't really us. It was the riders saying, we're not coming um, unless you make some of these changes, which they did. You know, there are certain rules they have to follow to qualify for the Olympics, but then they don't have to have, you know, matching uniforms (laughs) and sponsors or whatever. Um, But I worry that you know, you still see issues. I mean, I remember at the uh, South Korean Olympics, right? I mean, the very first snowboarding Olympics in 1998 in Nagano, they canceled every single ski event because of a downpour, pouring rain. But they held the half pipe. So it looked like shit. 
the, the goggles, the riders couldn't wear goggles. It was raining so hard. So you think, oh, man, they made the sport look so bad. Well, not a lot has changed, right? In South Korea, there are really high winds, and they cancel the downhill for the, you know, skiers. But they're going to let Anna Gosser fucking launch herself and almost die? She bailed because it was so unsafe. So there's still a double standard. They're still not understanding. So... That's one of my last mission in life, I think. And um, about a year ago, I made the decision to hire someone at a director level that sports advocacy and whose only job is going to be looking. I mean, they're looking at how do we increase participation, but how do we make sure that the riders that the athletes are the ones who are deciding what this sport looks like two years, five years, ten years from now, and not a bunch of suits in Zurich. Yeah, No, I love that. Respect. I, yeah, no, I think that's amazing, and that's exciting to hear because it is a really fraught topic, and it's complex, and it's the IOC is not a small entity to need to figure things out with by any means, and you know, this all meshes in. And, and they're with, corrupt. Yeah. This is, and it's, it's, you see it with locations and, um, and rider schedules. Yeah. And, the head of fist said, we like dictators. They don't give us any trouble. There are no environmental protesting. Literally. He said it. We love dictators. And it's so hard because it's like, I mean, I wrote a letter. I, I mean, the, there's a new... He died, thank God. <laughs> but the last president of FIST was like, you know, we like dictators and we like to do it. And um, climate change is a hoax. I remember that Women that shouldn't crazy. be competing on the same level as men because of their reproductive organs. I mean, he was fucking Trump with goggles, Right. And I wrote a letter to every single association because the board of FIS can't hire and fire the president, which is strange. I find that strange. All the associations. So I wrote a letter to every association saying, how can we have this as a representative of our sport? I got fucking nowhere. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So do you, do you see there any, any roadmaps or do you head where we're going? Yeah, I mean, I decided to uh, join the USSA board again. Um, and because Jake and I, that was one of the things we said, you know, either put us on your board or we're going to sue you again. <laughs> 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 so they said, welcome to the board. <laughs> <laughs> it's our foundation board. So I called them up again and I said, look, we've got to make some changes and and I'm worried about the, the legacy of the sport under your leadership. And I said, can I bring a wife? <laughs> and they were like, what? I said, <laughs> I wanted Kelly Clark to join with me. That's mm. awesome. So, and Ross Powers was, was already on it. So I think out of 88, there are now five snowboarders. Wow. Mm. Um, Solid ratio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's probably a heck of a border <laughs> meeting to sit in on. But so I think the idea is to, to both make internal changes, but then 
really work, what we're focusing on is really working with every single country. I mean, there are some countries that do it right. I think Canada puts, invests in a lot of good things or whatever. And so we'd really like to, so what this sports advocacy position at Burton is working on is sort of looking country by country what's going on and then sitting down with FIS and saying, look, these are the changes that have to be made at the Olympic level and then at each country level. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And you got to follow the fucking money. Mm. You know, I'll give you a really good example. In France, the way that the uh, association is set up is that there is a French ski school that has the monopoly, the Ecole Française de Ski, has the monopoly on teaching snowboarding. And they give a big part of the federation's money comes from them. They have three board seats. Now, guess what? In France, you cannot become a certified snowboard instructor unless you first become a certified ski instructor. Hmm. So they actually rejected a woman who was in the natural selection. Wow. Um, and said, you can't teach snowboarding because you didn't pass this. And so you go and you go, why is this? And you're like, oh, wait, they're getting all this money from the ski school. Uh, so anyway, there's a lot of work to yeah. be done. Um, but I'm really passionate about it because I think, you know, that's what I care about most is the sustainability of this sport mm. in the long run. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. heartening to hear well, about it's, that. It's like it's, it's really disheartening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, disheartening to hear. It's but heartening going, that, that yes. we're on it. I mean, it's yeah. got to be the riders who drive it, the yeah. athletes mm -hmm. who drive it that make the decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely interesting when you look at comp competitive snowboarding, and it's like on the local level, it's healthy and well, and even even like I'd say the X Games and things like that, kind of healthy and well represented. Snowboarding's represented well, and. And and things like that, but it's like as you get to the Olympics, which is supposedly in mainstream culture, like the pinnacle of our sport, it's represented fucking horribly. So hopefully we can make a change in that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we do. You know, speaking of Olympics and things like that, you know, a huge part of the fabric of the brand has been Sean White, and uh, even just to back it up a little bit, I remember going to the U.S. Opens as a kid. I went, I went through pre-qualifiers all the way, you know, made it up to semis one year. And it's like, I remember showing up being like a, you know, 17 year old kid and signing up on Monday. And then, and then that same year, like seeing like around that time, I don't know if it was the exact year, but seeing Kazu and Sean White battle it out when yeah, Kazu was he, a baby. And he had qualified. Yeah. That yep. year. Kazu. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Kazu was a nobody from... Yeah from Japan at that point he was a prodigy child but unheard of yeah and do you remember like there's this baby going huge battling <laughs> Sean in the pipe at the US Open so I remember seeing Sean as a kid and just standing on the deck of the half pipe and watching those guys battle but uh, I'd love to hear you talk about kind of what Sean has done for the brand Sean's talent is undeniable Right. I mean, he really was a child prodigy. He really changed the sport. He was clearly the best. He clearly um, kind of opened up snowboarding to the mainstream, right? If anybody knew anything about snowboarding. On the other hand, I think he alienated the core because he wasn't part of the community. 
And this is an interesting question. I mean, I remember kind of talking to my kids about this. Like, if you're going to be that kind of champion, can you still be that nice guy? I mean, people talk about LeBron James or Tiger Woods. Like, can you can you be both? So I think I know Jake always really respected that champion mentality that he had. Another problem, I think, is at some point, you know, when you're young and you get influenced by agents and so forth, and you're told, oh, you can have a platform as a rock star, or you can have a platform selling this. And it's like, no, people want to see you snowboard, you know? So I think that they lose touch with their roots. I think Sean's come back somewhat and realized um, how important the community itself is. I would say the experience with Sean kind of changed our philosophy around athletes and that it's really more important to us to have people whose values and goals align with ours and not just the best. You know, we were really committed to sponsoring the best athletes, period, right? And clearly that was Sean. And I think right now we're much more interested in sponsoring people who are great, obviously, but we're giving them other opportunities, you know, like maybe they get aligned with sustainability, like Danny Davis is really aligned with our sustainability efforts. Mark Sollers is doing so much for our chill foundation or whatever so there are other ways for them to contribute mm. did i answer your question you or did you i like great. totally <laughs> avoid no, it no, or you did great and step around it one thing that's cool to talk about too thinking about you know you talk about sponsoring the best and like to me i'm a huge zoe fan and and uh i was mm. had the pleasure of riding with her at mount that's Hood. when you're lucky because you've got the best and yes. somebody whose so, values yeah, and goals really align with ours is that totally. an air horn opportunity yeah huge air horn, yeah. horn. <laughs> totally what, what i said to her when we were super horn yes. super air horn okay I like whoops Whoa. no that's not a super <laughs> air horn hang on we got it that's a little new zealand chill yeah like it was one of those deals where i said to her i said zoe Thanks for being the best, but also being fucking cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. You know I mean? 100%. Like it's like because it's it's really important those people, you know, your marks and your Zoes and totally that are, that are that's that. I feel so good about our team right yeah. now. I mean, I would say they all embody our values and who we are and our purpose and mm -hmm. amazing human all beings. Right, we're gonna take a quick mm -hmm. break and talk to you guys about Union Bindings. I run the Force Classics. They're a clean, beautiful binding. And even before I was supported by Union, I always wanted the Union Force Classics. I'd see my boy Scotty Stevens out on those things, making them look good. And he'd always talk about how good the ratchets are. And they are buttery smooth. You got all types of adjustability on these bindings. They're good for anyone from a beginner all the way up to T. Ricky, Travis Rice. Anybody can get after it with these things. They're the perfect flex for me personally. Not too stiff. Not too soft, just right in the middle, just how I like them. And they are designed and engineered and tested in Italy. It's trusted by more professional snowboarders than any other binding on the market. 
It's backed by a lifetime warranty on the base plates and heel cups. At the end of the day, the binding just works. You can't go wrong with the Union Force Classics. They're always available at unionbindingcompany.com or your local retailer. So check them out if you're in the market for some new binders. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about Woodward. We got Woodward here in Park City. We brought the crew up there. We all did flips into the foam pit the other day. I did a flip in a scooter into the foam pit. It was really fun. And if you want, the thing I think is cool is if you want to learn how to do a backflip, for example, on a snowboard, you can do one on a rollerboard first before you take it to snow. So they're really focused on progression from whether you're a beginner just learning to link turns and then you have small jumps, medium jumps, all the way up to jumps you can do 1080s on, you know. So they've really focused on progression, whether it's in snowboarding, skateboarding, BMX, mountain biking. They've kind of got most action sports covered over at Woodward, and they're just doing cool stuff. They support our podcast. They support a lot of cool things in snowboarding. So if you have a Woodward in your local area, be sure to check it out. And if you're here in Utah, definitely be sure to check out Woodward Park City. All right, Donna, it's time to get into some of the hard-hitting topics. This is probably the most hard-hitting of the show. I feel nervous. Have you tried a run-through-a-wall smelling salt before? I have not. Okay. <laughs> All right. This may be a defining uh, moment in your career. So When do you do them? I do them. You know where I do them a lot? Driving. At night, I keep them in my truck. They wake you up. I do them. Um, I uh, sometimes I ride dirt bikes, and I do them before. At the, uh, oh, I get oh, one Mary, too. Mary, okay. Hey. Let's do this so together. Got one back there. I got one back here. All right, I'll I'm give ready. you a little tutorial. And okay. so, so you just kind of pinch it; it'll break, and then just ease it up to your nose. How close oh. do you want to get? Yeah. Oh, that's a good batch. Oh. That's a good batch. Oh. <laughs> Woo. Yeah. Oh, that's painful. Uh, uh, six more hours. Let's yeah, go. we're oh. good to go another 14 maybe. Yeah. Yep. Whoo. Jake had this period of time where he was in Rape. You ever do oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, the tobacco you put up your nose. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Same yeah. thing. Oh, it's yeah. Yeah. You know, I think at, at Burton, the productivity could be through the roof if you guys. If I just pass this shit out. Yeah, yeah. you maybe at the, yeah. It's you like know. a micro Except we're all crying. salts thing, <laughs> you know, like just Amazing. a little bit, not too intense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <sighs> all right, let's hit, uh, let's hit name that video part. This is the intro, by the way, not the song. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about the Icon Pass because winter is right around the corner. Resorts are about to start opening. They got the Icon Session Pass starting at only $319 adult. The Icon Pass Session 2-day, 3-day, and 4-day pass options offer a range of affordable entry points for the over 50-plus Icon Pass mountains. They also got the Icon Base Pass with limited blackout days across most of the 50-plus mountains. And of course, they got the Icon Pass. Only the Icon Pass provides the most access to the most mountains with no blackout dates. That's every bit of good stuff possible. They got over 178,000 skiable acres across more than 50 destinations worldwide. The good stuff is almost here. Again, from only $319 adult, stay ready with your at Icon Pass to 50 plus destinations worldwide. All right, Donna, what's your confidence level zero through 10 on name that video part? Minus one. Minus one. <laughs> 
no hesitation. <laughs> this is snowboarding's hot seat right here. Yeah, like, this for is, sure. a lot of people. This is uh, could be a defining moment here. All right, here we go. Let's see how you do. Oh, um, dear writer. It is. Congratulations. <laughs> let's let's let me find the applause. Congratulations. Yeah. Yourself a bombhole prize. Pack. Oh, that was a nice softball. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure where to go with it, but we went with uh, we went with Deer Rider. Great segment there. You can and uh, you you earned that. You earned that bombhole prize pack. We got hats, <laughs> stickers, water bottles, all kinds of fun stuff. Some smelling salts in there. There too. is some smelling salts. All right. Salt. Thank you. Yep. And then for part two and name that video part. This is for our listeners. If you guys know what video this is, comment on the Mary, photo. Mary, mouth it to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope I know. Yeah, this again, you guys aren't in the hot seat, so you're good. Can you I phone a friend? TK? Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> here we go. So I got a peep gang laying in the cut. All right. That one's for our listeners, Donna. So you don't need to you don't Yay. need to know that one. But uh, if you know if you know what video part that is, uh, comment on the photo of Donna on our Instagram. That's where we pick our winner. And you also have to say writer and video. It can't just be one or the other. So uh, also a big fan of, of the guy who opens up this segment too. Just got to add that in there. And then uh, thank you guys for playing Name That Video Part. All right, Donna, I got a, uh, a quote that I've heard many a times in this small snowboard industry, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this quote. It's kind of two quotes, but also I've heard where Burton goes, snowboarding goes, or as Burton goes, snowboarding goes, and I've also heard when Burton sneezes, we all get sick. What are your thoughts on those? What are your thoughts? What are my thoughts? Ooh, That's a question, good... Question. Oh, damn, you turned it around on me. <laughs> um... What are my thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I do think you guys are the industry leading, uh, you know, you guys are forging the path in a lot of directions. So you guys set the tone in a lot of the way snowboarding's heading. So I think by defining what you support, there is some truth to that statement. And, you know, you, you guys support something. Snowboarding does follow because you guys are the biggest brand and snowboarding by a, a landslide, right? Yeah, good or bad, right? Good or bad, yeah. 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 No, I would say that's the burden of being the pioneer and being a leader is that you do have a responsibility. But I think we've always taken that responsibility. I think we've always known that responsibility. And I don't think you can name another company out there that invests more in the sport, whether it's sponsoring riders, competitions, you know, stoking out instructors, you know, everything, like I said, snowboarding is such an ecosystem. We don't just exist alone. It's, you know, it's the brands, it's the shops, it's the scarias, it's the instruction. So I don't know that you could name a company that's invested more, but, you know, like anybody, we make mistakes and um, can lose credibility pretty quickly too. Um. Also, you know, the, the other thing is, is as you get bigger, I'm sure it would be interesting to hear your perspective is like the reality is whether it's a person or a brand or whatever, when you get to a certain, you become a juggernaut, like you guys have a fucking target on your back a lot of times. Totally. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think, 
Yeah, it's normal, right? In any industry, hate the big man or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it kind of makes me crazy, like when people call us corporate because you're like, dude. Like, I remember talking to this consumer. We were doing some consumer qualitative research, and this consumer is like, yeah, Burton's really big in corporate. I like vans. And you're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, do you know who owns vans? <laughs> you know, and how big it is? It's a perception, right? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we've done things that we deserve the target. You know, we might not have been responsive to the core community in a way that we should have or respectful or whatever. So I think some of it was earned and some of it just comes with the territory. But I also think it's changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't feel like I get that vibe mm -hmm. too much anymore. When you get home, like, uh, say, like, after work, you know, or when you're just trying to be like, okay, I just want to chill or whatnot, and how, when you have those moments, um, you know, of challenge or feeling like someone's calling you guys out or something like that, how do you deal with it on a personal level, you know, when to kind of deal with you, the snowboarder inside, having that dedication and dealing with that stress? Two things. Meditation saved my life, changed my life, I should say. So I'm a big meditator, and that kind of gets you grounded and keeps you grounded. And snowboarding. Mm. You know, you go back out and say, ah, oh, this is why I'm doing this, and this is so incredible. You know, the moments I have with friends or family or colleagues, I think uh, it's important to get out there. Mm. This could be a good time. You know, recently I was told that you've been on the journey of sobriety, and I would love to hear what led you down that path and how that's going. Yeah, I was on that path for a long time. I first got sober in 2001. <clears throat> I thought I was going insane. I was like, I couldn't control my drinking, and I thought I must be fucking crazy. Like, sometimes it would be controlled, and sometimes it would be out of control. You're nodding. Yep. Um, and luckily, I had a friend who had a lot of experience with alcoholism, and she came to Jake and I and said, you know, this isn't going to get better. I went to treatment. I was sober 14 years. And then Jake started getting sick, and I started smoking weed. And I thought, oh, that's okay. You know, that's different. What do they call that? California sober. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and it worked for a while, but <clears throat> losing Jake was like, you know, nothing I've ever experienced. The grief was overwhelming. Um, after Jake died, the pandemic hit. After the pandemic hit, both my parents died within a short time of each other. And I returned to an old coping skill. And I think because I had been smoking weed, I was like, oh, you know, what's a drink? Um, doesn't get any better out there when you get out there. I learned a lot. I learned that I hadn't grieved. I really hadn't gone through the process of grieving. And, you know, partly it was my fault. But the other thing was the pandemic and you got to put on a, hey, this is going to be okay, people. Like, you know, I really, it's funny. I, I had made John Lacey um, co-CEO with me in 2019. 
and I promoted him to sole CEO a month before the pandemic. <laughs> so I basically had to kind of jump back in <clears throat> to the day-to-day um, and turn to old coping skills. And, you know, it was my sons who had seen me mostly sober my life, and they came to me and said, you got to get help. And uh, I took three months off, and it was incredible. I mean, I was—I think I was really able to go through the grieving process. Um, I shared the journey with the company, which is something I hadn't done before. And, you know, people were so appreciative that I could be that vulnerable or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I love being sober. It rocks. I forgot how great it is. And it's been over a year now. Mm. Congrats. That's yeah. th- thanks for sharing yeah. that. Uh, a and B, uh, one thing that I, you know, I'm on a similar journey and, and one thing that get people reach out all the time and they're like, Hey, I'm thinking about trying, I have a problem or I think I have a problem, but I don't know where to start. I don't know how to quit. Do you have any advice or a roadmap for anybody that's trying to embark on that journey of sobriety? Yeah, I think talk to another alcoholic in recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think once you start talking to another alcoholic in recovery, you're like, oh, wow, we might be really different, but our stories are really similar. <clears throat> try AA, try mm-hmm. the program, you know, and I like to say most normal drinkers don't just try AA. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. Um Yeah, it's hard because you don't want to prescribe anything for anybody, but more be there like, hey, when you're ready, I'm here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good stuff. And I think it's interesting to me to to watch, you know, when I first got sober over 20 years ago, people didn't really talk about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm hearing more and more people, oh, I'm sober too, and and talking about it publicly. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was really important. I mean, I also disappeared for three months from the company, so I owed them some kind of explanation. Mm -hmm. But to be able to kind of share, hey, listen, I was on this journey. There was a perfect storm. I relapsed, and now I'm back on that journey again. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whether they are in sobriety, thinking about it, or just going through struggles, you know, I think it was, and, and need to take care of your mental health, mm-hmm. right? You need, sometimes you need to step away and take care of your mental health. But I think people like you talking about it, people like me talking about it, riders talking about it, whatever, I think that's um, such a good sign. Mm-hmm. Totally. I think if there's uh, one thing, you know, you don't, like you said, you don't want to prescribe anything. What I think about sometimes is like the only the thing that you might be able to prescribe to a, a friend is, is some advice on self-compassion. You know, because I think that that's like the ultimate devastator. You try to get clean, you start drinking again. You're like, I'm such a piece of shit. I'm being. Uh, why would I do this? I'm such a. And like the self compassion is like a lot, of, a lot, a lot to learn in those journeys. Well, the shame keeps yes. you from getting help. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah. and as you know, you get yourself into a world of fucking shame. Yeah, imagine me. I'm like I was sober all those years. Mm-hmm. Imagine how I was talking to myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you're such a fucking idiot. How could you be, find yourself in this situation mm-hmm. again? So I think the key to recovery is self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Totally. 
Wise words. Love it. Fun. It's fun to be able to have these conversations openly and candidly. It's cool how things yeah. change. You know, it's like totally like a, the older generations. Like, no, you fucking don't fucking tell anybody that you like. Make sure you look polished. And but it's like, no, we're like chances are the person next to you is going through the same struggles you are. Yeah, and so exactly. it's like might as well mm-hmm. fucking talk about it. Yeah. And it's hard in snowboarding because there is such a nightlife party atmosphere point. You know, to this culture and to have individuals like yourself standing up and saying, there's an alternative. It's okay. It's, it's fine. And we still have a lot of fucking fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you feel better the next morning. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. You hang out with a bunch of like recovery people. They're usually were the biggest maniacs. So you're having <laughs> a damn good time. Totally. They're like people you would have hung out with drinking. Yeah, yes. exactly. <clears throat> yes. Yep. <laughs> and shout out to Silk. He's also on a sober journey as well back there. Yeah. Producer. Shout out. Yeah. Let's give him an air horn back air there. Air horn. <laughs> Killer. Well, we got a guest question from none other than Sparky. Sparky. A.K.A. Mark McMorris. If I can find this damn thing. Hang on one second. Where is it? Right here. Okay, here we go. Hi, Donna. Bombhole crew. Mark McMorris here with a guest question. Donna, how exactly did Jake pass his German language course final? I always found this really funny. Sending my love. All the best, guys. Ciao. Oh, that's pretty funny. And, you know, first I just want to say the amazing thing about snowboarding are the friendships. And I would have to say Mark was one of Jake's very closest friends And there was a 40-year age gap. I mean, how fucking cool is that, right? I mean, they were true soulmates, and their age didn't matter. It's so cool. But, yeah, so when when we were moving to Europe, we, um, like I said, the the guy who was helping us build the boards or who was building the boards didn't speak any English. And we were – I had had a year of – two years of uh, German in college. So Jake and I decided to go to the Middlebury Language School, which is an eight-week intensive course. It was kind of hell. But he really, I mean, he's kind of trying to run this company in the U.S. at the same time doing this language school. So he realized, and this is so typical, Jake, he realizes like the finals are coming up and he's not quite prepared, right? So he approaches the other people in the class and they decide to do a skit about all the kids in the class, like the teacher's pet and the one who can never get it right, and then invite all the professors over for German beer. <laughs> A+. plus. <laughs> I mean, that was Jake, right? (laughs) He made everybody laugh. He made everybody have a good time, but Mm -hmm. it was always unconventional. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's amazing. That's so fun. I love that. Um, Okay, I want to change gears and talk about something like really near and dear to your heart, and that would be the the Chill Foundation. I'd love to hear why you started it, what it's all about, what you guys got going on. Yeah, so Jake and I knew that at some point after starting the company, we'd want to give back in a way. And we had time to think about it because everything was pledged to the bank, including our children and our dogs and our whatever. But we knew at a point we really wanted to give back. And we thought about different things. We thought about environmental causes or whatever. And then we said, we really want to give back to kids and a couple reasons. One was they teenagers were the ones who put Burton on the map. 
in the beginning. They were the ones who took a risk. I mean, you got to remember, you got this thing in a box. You had to put it together. You had to take it to your local golf course or back hill. There was no instruction. There was no how-to manual. So it was really teenagers who took that risk on us, and, and so we wanted to give back. And then I think Jake would always say that he was the type of kid who was always in trouble and kind of wouldn't would have fallen through the cracks if he hadn't had the family resources and education and support that he did. So I think he always felt an affinity for teenagers in trouble. <laughs> mm -hmm. But anyway, so we decided to start the Chill Foundation, and it really started as a learn-to-ride program in Burlington, Vermont. The whole idea was to work with agencies like the Boys and Girls Club, homeless shelters, youth foster, group rehabs, and say, hey, we want, we want to take kids snowboarding who otherwise wouldn't be able to snowboard. And after a while, we realized, wow, this is more than a learn-to-ride program. This is really a positive youth development program. We're teaching kids skills that they are then using and applying to their lives. And so, like, every week you go has a theme. There's patience, perseverance, courage, pride, right? And um, all of a sudden, we're like, fuck, this is a world-class youth development. And it started spreading, and we're now in 20 cities in nine countries. We serve about 3,000 kids uh, a year, and they snowboard, uh, surf, or stand up, paddle, and skateboard. Um, and it's like 11 to 19. It costs them zero to participate in the program, and it really changes lives. I mean, what's amazing to me is like you have kids in Salt Lake City or Denver or Burlington who haven't even conceived of themselves being in the mountain. These are inner city kids with challenges we can't even imagine. And to think that they're in a place like Salt Lake looking around at the mountains and never envisioning themselves there and all of a sudden they get the opportunity, their whole lives open up as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's really incredible. I mean, the mission is to change lives through board sports. And more recently, we've kind of added and make the outdoor world a more equitable place where more people feel welcome. Yeah. And I can say from firsthand, too, uh, last year we went up, we did an Oakley event, and Chill was a part of the Oakley event. And so we took some laps with these kids and it's like what you're saying is I experienced it. The kids are fucking psyched. Yeah. Like, and they're just barely, they're not even really linking turns yet, but they might just go on falling leaf, but they're, they are gassed and up they on falling go leaf. For it. Yeah. 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 One of my first jobs in the industry, I was the Burlington coordinator for chill. Oh, no way. Uh, with Joe Rizzo. He was oh on the Oh my God. Crew. I think I had totally forgotten yeah, that. So long ago. <laughs> but yeah. it was incredible. And we took kids to Bolton Valley, which is, you know, a good 30 minutes, if that, from Burlington. And a lot of the kids that were with us, they had never been to any mountain in Vermont. And it was so close. And seeing, it was eight weeks, right? Is that how long mm -hmm. it is? So seeing the progression um, of them going from being totally scared of the idea of falling, hurting themselves, being embarrassed, any of those things that go along with that and overcoming that, it really is incredible. I think if you can, you can get 
young people in on the ground floor like that, you can make such a big difference in so many ways, not only their individuals, but also in snowboarding. But yeah. it was amazing. What you're telling them is, look, you can take positive right. risks mm-hmm. in your life, right? right? You can try something, fail, get up, learn, do it again. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that positive risk taking is such a big part of it. Yes. Yeah. And it's a real learning, I think, like you're saying, for the volunteers and the staff that work there as well. It's like not to sound cheesy, but it's one of those situations where the kids teach you as much as you teach them. Totally. You know, it's it's really wonderful. And I think seeing what chill continues to be and has become and and the other organizations that have come up in recent years and are providing similar kind of opportunities. I mean, that's such a great thing for snowboarding. Mm. And I'm excited because we're ex- we're growing. Um, we're expanding both geographically. We're um, setting up more programs in Europe. So, like this year, we just started uh, Switzerland and Germany. We already had Austria, Italy, Czech Republic, and there it's a real uh, way to integrate local kids with recent immigrants. You know. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and then. Again, I think after the George Floyd murders, it was like, all right, what can we do to make this more of an equitable sport? And even though kids' lives were being changed, not a lot of kids were staying in the sports or making a career out of the sports. So in Jake's honor, we've started something we're calling Chill Evolution, which is we're going to start working with other companies to provide internships, mentorships, retail jobs to to have and and then more advanced training like we just took some kids to do uh photography, you know, That's where sick. they yeah. And um so we're really expanding and mm. growing. That's fun. Which and is exciting. I don't know if you if you've been briefed on the uh, giveaway we got. I heard a, I might have heard a rumor that you're going <laughs> to help us out. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, so it's pretty exciting. Uh, we just found out this morning, so it's a little bit of a a junk show as far as like uh, the organization of this. But all of the all of the details will be in the show notes of the YouTube or the description of the YouTube or the show notes of the podcast. It'll all be laid out there if you want to donate. But we have a 2013 Burton Nug. From Jake's private collection, it's a 146. It's got a certificate of authenticity signed uh, by TK, basically. So, uh, which is is really cool. All right, we got all the details ironed out for the giveaway of the nug from Jake's personal collection. You basically donate directly to the Chill Foundation at chill.org, uh, or we will have a link. On the screen, if you're watching on YouTube, you can just click that link. We'll also have a link in the YouTube description. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'll have a link in the show notes to donate. Or you can find a link on our website, bombhole.com or our Instagram. And we'll be announcing the winner November 6th on our Instagram. So be sure to donate to a great cause, the Chill Foundation, and support good people doing great things. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, Burden is not the only funder. We're actually a public um, charity, which means less than 33% of the funding actually comes from Burden. But what Burden does is we provide all the back end, right? So we provide the salaries, the administration, all that. So when people are giving to Chill, it's going directly to programming. Cool. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah, that's actually... that's a really good thing that you pointed out because you never know with like nonprofits what, yeah. how it all breaks down. If, yeah. But that's really the idea is that, hey, Burton's covering the overhead, the back end, you know, 
And so that every dollar we get outside of Burton is going directly to allow us to expand programming. Mm. Cool. Uh, Mary, I got some topics, but do you have any direction you want to take it? Um, yeah, I, uh, well, I have kind of a, I have a random fun question. Um, so we were talking earlier about the Burton team and just the legacy of great riders that have obviously been a part and is still are, are still a part of the brand. But if you look back at, you know, the past couple of decades of snowboarding, are there any riders that you're like, oh, I wish they had been on our team, but they, they were on some other team? Oh, wow. Good question. It is a good question, Mary. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering that myself now. <laughs> yeah, I would probably say Jamie Anderson. Mm. That's a that's a solid solid Great team answer. answer. <laughs> Great answer, killer. So I mean another another big topic is super interesting with Burton is uh, you guys are privately owned for forty five years. Uh, would you ever sell Burton? Never. 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 Woo! Quick did answer. You see, no pause. Did you see <laughs> the Bloomberg thing? Did I didn't see it. No. No. Yeah, so Bloomberg, I don't know, this was like a year ago. Oh, I did see that. Oh, yeah, yes. so Bloomberg published this thing that said we were negotiating our sale. Yeah. And it even said, like, for how much and whatever. And it was so not true and so out of the blue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was fucked up. That was crazy. Yeah. And there was rumors, actually, around yeah. that time that people were like, oh, Burton's getting ready to sell. Yeah. Yeah, that was a thing. I forgot about and that. And then it shows up in Bloomberg, which you think of as... Well, exactly. Yeah. 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 And so I am. Yeah, I remember John Lacey ran into my office like, "Oh my God, you're not selling, are you?" Oh my God! <laughs> you're like, "I got something to tell you. Forgot <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to tell you." Um, no, so like I had to address the employees to say, "Hey, this isn't true." And then we did a pretty good post where I said, "Not for sale." Cool. I remember there was a distinctive finger in that yes, post. There was. Oh Burton, yeah. Not for sale. I we even made stickers. Burton, not for sale. No, I mean. I think it's our biggest competitive advantage. I think it allows us to do things other companies can't do. I think it allows us to invest in things and not pull the plug on them because the economy is not doing well or the shareholders want a bigger dividend or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, when Jake passed, I went to my three kids and said, you know, what do you want to do here? Because we could sell it to a partner and you could stay involved or whatever. And they were all very adamant that they, they don't necessarily want to run the business, but they want to keep it a family-held private company. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you create something like Burton, you're not thinking, well, what do I do when it becomes successful? Because you're not thinking that. Yeah, yeah, good point. So you're like, fuck, I don't want to sell it. I don't want to take a public. I don't want to burden my kids with it. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, but we've been planning for a long time to kind of keep those options open. So, um, and it's pretty cool that the kids do want to keep it going as a family held private company. And in recent years, um, your boys have taken different roles. And um, I know like Timmy's working with the Mind 77 collection really closely, right? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. working with them and now he's gone back to fashion and design school. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and George has been really involved in our social justice work. You know, he created something called Culture Shifters. I yep. don't know if you guys know about mm -hmm. that. That was one of the coolest things we ever did. And that really came from 
from George, and he's really passionate about inviting more people of color into our sport and making them feel welcome. And Culture Shifters is an event he started where we brought um, people of color from all walks of life. Some of them are NFL players, DJs, artists, and bring them for a good time in Aspen for a few days. And the last one was amazing. It was hosted by Zeb Powell and uh, Salema Masakala. Yeah, Both and Salema. Amazing individuals. Both. And so not only did we party and have a good time and snowboard, but we had some really real conversations about the barriers. You know, I hate when I hear companies saying, oh, it's affordability issue. It's not just about money. It's a cultural issue, and it's, it's things that we can do better. Um, so, yeah, my oldest son has been really involved in, in that work. Killer. And one thing you briefed over is the middle finger has been uh, a constant in Burton's, you know, imagery, iconic imagery, branding in some senses, and it can be often misconstrued. And, you know, for maybe maybe a good explanation of what the middle finger is all about would be cool. I think it's a sign of love and community. <laughs> I mean, I think it was, you know... Um, Jake used to say, one of the things he used to say was, don't get mad, get even. Like, I think he was very motivated when people said, that's never going to work. You can't fucking do that. Snowboarding's never going to last. It's a fad. That made us, tell me no, tell us no, and we're going to fucking show you, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and that flipping of the bird is kind of, hey, we're going to show you. Tell us no. Tell you no, we can't do that. No, it'll never work. Fuck you. So it did just become kind of a Burton sign of love and community. <laughs> well, that's important, and that And that just fuck you, we're not going to take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. And also, even just hearing that, like, it's the fabric at its core of skateboarding and snowboarding and surfing is like we that's where we came from is we were not accepted people were like you guys and you you fucking punk kids get off the curb stop skating go snowboarding we don't give a shit about you and it's like it's it has evolved into this olympic thing with fucking coaches and ipads but like <laughs> at its core that's what the fuck it that's is that's who we are yeah. yeah and that's a good reminder so i actually just got inspired hearing you say that so that's cool <laughs> I actually never heard it in context like that, but I'm sure you've gotten some nasty letters about the. I I ignore those. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they really don't. They really don't get it. And you know what? We've done things a lot more controversial than that. True. You know, Jake and I made a couple dump Trump boards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I think I remember seeing he was riding one. I think I've oh, never yeah. seen that. That's. Oh I'm yeah, a, I'm a fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Um, we, you know what we have is some Patreon questions. I almost forgot. We had a Patreon that supports us, and they submit some questions. So I thought there were some interesting ones. Um, this one in particular is good. Tucker Zink asks, uh, Burton has been steadily becoming direct-to-consumer brand, offering exclusive Burton.com-only product, opening storefronts, and even offering rentals online. What is your view of the local shop? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the retail landscape has changed. You know, I'm sure local shops never thought we would become a retailer, but we never thought shops would have their own house brands. I mean, it's like, you know, brands have become retailers and retailers have become brands, and that's just the way it is. 
I think what people don't really understand is when we go into a market like with a flagship store, we're raising the, we're making the pie bigger for everybody. It's not like we're just taking a bigger slice of the pie. I mean, retailers aren't able to show our brand in its depth. I mean, think about all the products we have and all the things that we do and all the stories we have to tell, right? We can do that better in a flagship store. And then the good retailers will benefit from that. So, And you can see that. You can see in an area where we go in and build a flagship hub that the dealers around us do better. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, Silk, let's hit another Patreon. We got one from... Uh, Michael Edmondson? You got yeah. One? What is the most important business lesson you learned from Jake or with Burton? And what's the best way slash most creative way Jake's memory has been honored? Yeah. Um, I learned a lot from Jake um, about business and about life. And, you know, one of them was really don't worry about what other people are doing. Um and focus on getting even in the marketplace, <laughs> right? He was also incredibly ethical, and we've always believed in paying our fair share. I always say Burton pays more taxes than Google, Apple, and GE put together, because they pay none. <laughs> 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 but I think, you know, there are a lot of different ways we're honoring his legacy, but I think the best way is through the Mind 77 collection. And I'll kind of tell you how that started. So, you know, I mentioned that he really cheered me on in every role I had. And he had actually asked me to become CEO a couple years before. I Typical female, right, Mary? I'm like, I'm not ready. I didn't, you know. Totally. I know. But he was always sort of pushing me, you know, in that direction. So I was CEO. And he came to me and he said, I have a complaint for the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> And I had kind of restructured our supply chain and how it interacted with creative. And he said, I can't get my ship made. Like, I have an idea. And he's like, I'm going to have 10 ideas. Eight are going to be completely whack. But two, you're going to be really glad I had. And I can't get the stuff made. And I said, yeah, because when we're producing something, all of a sudden you throw 100 or 50 of these great ideas in it just rocks thing and then I said to myself I go dude why don't you make whatever the fuck you want in small quantities we've got Craig's in Burlington that can make any kind of hard good in small quantities we've got an R&D facility in China that can do up to 100 jackets soft goods or whatever and I was like make whatever you want he was like a little kid again. I mean, that's you you just saw the pure love of product. I mean, the guy was amazing because he could be an entrepreneur, wear every hat, and then he could run a company. But he didn't like it. He liked being in the nitty-gritty of the product. And so he's like, really? And I'm like, really? And it was the coolest thing ever. So he could come up with any idea, whether it was a different design a different fabric whatever and we would make it in small quantities and it was hugely successful and I just feel so lucky that he got to do that it was almost like returning to his roots of of that product in small quantities and you know he always had ideas ahead of his time 
So we have tried to, you know, really keep that going. Um, can I interject a question building off that? From Absolutely. The, so, um, you know, you talk about the things that you've learned from Jake, but uh, I wanted to kind of take a step back in that when you've been coming up and to the role that you now have in snowboarding, there wasn't really an archetype for that, and especially as a woman. Um, so who did you who did you take inspiration for? Who mentored you or did you, you know, where did you learn to do what you do now? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a lack of mentors and a lack of role models. But again, I think that the mission was always bigger than us. I've always taken real inspiration from the athletes. You know, I think about people like Nicola Toast, who was like one of my first heroes or whatever, and, um, you know, Kelly and Kimmy or whatever. And yeah, it was really much, hey, figure it out as you go, right? Like, I remember one time, Jake, we were announcing kind of a change in in the senior team, and he turned to me, and I'd been handling Europe for a long time, and he turned to me right before the meeting, and he goes, oh, I forgot to tell you, I'm giving you Asia too. It's <laughs> <laughs> casual, a casual aside. And I was like, woo, okay. And um, I really had no experience in the Asian market, so what did I do? I went and spent time there. I think that's the most important thing. I mean, I think we became truly global and successful because Jake and I were living in Europe when we went into the European market. And I I have a way of going down, sure, I'll talk to the general manager, but I'll also talk to the warehouse guy and I'll talk to the receptionist and I get them to open up to me about what's really happening. So it's, I mean... Yeah, you just do it because you got to. <laughs> this is an interesting topic, too, about kind of like masculine and feminine leadership. I think it's really interesting, too, because a lot of times, you know, um, uh, masculine leadership, I would associate sometimes with maybe a little bit more emotionless, a little bit more like get it done, um, maybe grit or something like that. But then with feminine, it seems very like human, humane, like relationship, kind, nurture those relationships and it seems like you, your leadership style has just been massively beneficial for the brand as I'm like listening to you talk. Yeah, I mean, Jake was always a partner. And in the last six, seven years, okay, super foghorn or whatever it is for John. <laughs> for, <laughs> for John <laughs> Lucy. It's a foghorn now. It is. I like okay. it. <laughs> for John Lacey, you know, have, I think we have been kind of yin and yang as partners and building the company and we've had our best years ever under our leadership mm -hmm. that's so cool um amazing stuff fuck i just forgot oh, oh i wanted to say this real quick uh i have forgotten a lot of air horns in this because oh, i am so so deeply engaged in this conversation so if somebody heard their name they're like i didn't get an air horn it's because i'm locked in on what you're saying so anyway mary if you want to take it no i i had just one more question about that and because i think you know, I think you bring up a great point about the masculine qualities, feminine qualities, traditional leadership kind of things like that. But then there's also you throw in the thing that it can be very challenging to come up as a female leader. And that's still that's still something that affects um, and I'm not trying to go, you know, crazy hard into the gender thing. But that's a real that's a real thing that I'm sure you encountered as well. And just getting gaining acceptance in in the industry and creating that. 
Yeah, that and balancing it mm -hmm. because women still, no matter how enlightened we say we are, women are still primarily responsible for taking care of the kids and the household and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think it gave me a lot of empathy um, for the women in my company um, who wanted to become leaders. I think, you know, you know what I used to say about women's leadership was it was not a feel-good or even a do-good initiative. It was a fucking bottom-line initiative. Companies with diversity are it's proven they're better run, they're better governed, they're more profitable. And it makes sense, right? When you've got a diversity of opinions around the table, you're more likely to come up with the better solutions. Oh mm -hmm. my God. Yeah. 100%. We can, we can say that at the bomb wall, huh, Silk? We got, oh, yeah. We got Jules as our GM. And, I, and people ask me questions. I say, I don't know, man. I just work here. You guys got to ask Jules. <laughs> she's, she's like got all the answers. Yeah. yeah. 100%. True yeah, boss good, right there. Good balance, you know. Um, cool. Uh, one other note I have down here is the four agreements. Uh, I heard you're a fan of the book. Sell, sell me on the book. <laughs> yeah, I am a fan of the book. It started um, kind of with my kids. Jake and I would read it or talk to them about it every Thanksgiving. And then I realized it could really be applied to business. And so when John Lacey and I became co-CEOs in 2018, I said, let's base our relationship off of this book. And in a nutshell, it's, um, you know, it's based on ancient Toltec wisdom, a way to live your life, um, kind of getting rid of those self-limiting beliefs um, to be freer and and the four agreements are be impeccable with your word. And that means more than just kind of doing what you'll say you do, but understand the power that your words have. And I've learned that as a leader, like, and as an owner, I might say something flippant and people are like, oh shit, she wants us to do this or whatever. You know, you gotta be careful with your words, because they can either create or destroy. So be impeccable with your words. The second one is don't take things personally. And I really love that one, because chances are it's not about you. <laughs> chances are whatever's being projected on you is about that person. And I think especially in business, we have a tendency to take things personally. And that's actually one of the things I love working with John Lacey because you can have the most difficult, intense conversations and at the end it's like, it was business. It's fucking business. We're friends, you know. Um, the third one is don't make assumptions. Ask, right? I think we all as humans, you know, we see like if you rolled your eyes, I would say, oh, fuck, he hated my answer, you know, and maybe you're pissed at Silk there. I don't know, you know, so. Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> don't make assumptions and always do yeah. your best. Yeah. You're nodding. Probably. Are you a fan? Oh, yeah. I've, yeah, totally. I've read it yeah, many times. And, yeah. And it's and one other thing to add, too, if anybody's interested, it's like a very, very nice, like, intro-level book. It's, it's, it's short. It's not dense. It's short. You can read it in a day. You yeah. Can read it, you know, easy. So How have I missed this and not read this book? I've never heard of this book today. I need, I'm going to get it yeah. this afternoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's great. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
yeah, solid intro to anybody that's like, even if you haven't picked up a book in like 10 years, you can pick this thing up and be like, damn, I'm, I'm reading, I'm doing it. This is good. I'm <laughs> learning. I feel good. It's, it's basic. Human you know, nature. the other book that had an incredible impact on me and thinking about the culture at Burton was Yvonne Chouinard's book, Let My People Go Surfing. Oh, I haven't heard of that one either. What's yeah, that one? it's it's old. Um, I think it was probably the, one of the first books he he wrote, but it was about kind of an economic downturn that they went through in the eighties and how much he realized culture was important and what he did to nurture the the culture there. And that book had a big impact on me. Mm. That my people that go surfing. Cool, great, great uh, actionable advice. I think that's cool. All right, we're we're running down the uh, show notes here. I got to get into another one here with, uh, you know, China as an emerging market and what your guys' take on that is at Burton. Yeah, I mean, China is definitely an emerging market. We've actually been there for a long time um, in a small scale. I mean, I remember going there a few years ago, and it reminds you of what was happening here in the eighties. You mm. know, people discovering snowboarding and discovering like-minded people but it's all new there right <laughs> like capitalism is new and people owning ski resorts is new and and ski resorts are new i mean they've built like 500 of them in five years or something but um yeah their investment is is quite incredible so we've always had a, a presence there been connected to the scene there um, but realized a couple years ago that it was really going to start to explode, both because of the government's investment in the infrastructure and the middle class getting more disposable income, being able to do that. Um, so we realized we needed a partner in China, not necessarily for the capital, but, but really kind of helping us, guiding us there and we found what I like to say is a unicorn, <laughs> really, truly. We found a guy who um, started a company called Hill House, and they're Nike's distributor. They're Adidas's distributor. You know, he's huge and very wealthy guy, happens to live for snowboarding. I mean, he thinks of it as a spiritual experience, you know, and his kids and his family. I mean, he really does live to snowboard. So I think Burton's like our joint venture is like a rounding error in his <laughs> uh, balance sheet, but it's his passion. So, and, and fortunately, Jake got to build a relationship. We did the joint venture with him before Jake passed. So Jake really got to see it wasn't about the money. It was about building the, the sport, getting people to do it. You know, snowboarding is knows no borders. It doesn't know fucking politics. And this guy wants to help us spread that in China. So we got super lucky there. But it is growing. Um, you know, the numbers are just insane, right, when you think of the scale of things there. It's also predominantly snowboarders over skiers. Oh, really? Yeah, that's kind of exciting. Oh, yeah. It's about 65%. Wow. Damn, that's a win. Yeah. <laughs> All of Asia is a majority. You know, you didn't have that entrenched alpine skiing history, mm. industry, whatever, over there. Cool. So it's a majority um, snowboarding. That's That's rad. cool, Yeah. Love that. And it almost seems like the al the entrenched alpine skiing is the root of like the it's like uh 
it's what kind of what makes what makes skiing whack in some ways, right? Because like at its core, sometimes I look at you know skiing is almost in this like country club, tennis club, skiing bubble. If we're doing a Venn diagram with my hands here, <laughs> and then you have you know snowboarding, skateboarding, surfing, and like somehow they both collide on the mountain, but they're two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I mean I think it's why you you didn't see much innovation in skiing mm-hmm. for a long mm-hmm. time. You know, Jake and I used to call them suits with spreadsheets. They mm-hmm. weren't out there doing their sport. Right. You know, you've seen some innovation now with with freestyle skiing, but for a long time there was no innovation and it was just run like a business, any mm-hmm. other business, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Straight down the mountain. Do you guys no ever turns. think about And we learned from that. You know, we learned, hey, we got to stay in touch. We got to stay in love with the sport and we got to do it. Did, it. did anybody ever say, like, should we make skis at Burton? <laughs> no, but we put out an announcement once and it was April Fool's. <laughs> <laughs> and we said, you know, we made this fancy announcement that we were going to start producing skis. <laughs> I remember that, uh, I don't know what year it was, but the year you guys had an outerwear print that had skiers. It was like white with little green skiers. <laughs> and that was pretty funny. <laughs> That's so cool. All right. So, you know, one, we're getting down to the to wire here, but one of the things that I really am curious about, you may have answered it in some capacity, but I think you could probably elaborate on it. But, you know, losing Jake on a personal level as a, as a husband and a father and in addition to that, leading your company through hard times, through COVID, and just through, so, like you said, you mentioned earlier too, losing your parents and like just this tremendous amount of grief and pressure. And like, I, I'm just curious, like, how did you not fucking buckle and what got you through it? I just told you, I buckled. Yeah, you did buckle. Yeah, true. Yeah. Okay, good point. That's a good point. But I think even the comeback from the buckle is still like, it was a, yeah. that's a lot in itself. Yeah, no, and I think a lot of it has to do with that Burton is more than a company. It's a family. I mean, every day I would feel the support from everybody who works there, from the senior management to the people in the retail shop. And you just feel lifted and carried by them. And yes, responsible, but it's a joy to be responsible um, to those people. So I think the fact that we're really a community, we're really a snowboard community, um, was tremendously helpful. Mm. My sons have all been amazing. You know, I think something like that brings you all closer together. I was lucky I had one of them move in with me who's very much like Jake and, like, he's the cruise director. Let's go splitboarding. It's 5.30 a.m. Yay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my kids have been amazing and have really been there for me. Did you find with the timing of the release of Dear Rider, I mean, just as we were starting to be able to gather together again, um, you know, from the pandemic and everything and getting to celebrate him as a family with the greater collective family of snowboarding. How was that? Yeah. You know what? I really think that was a good way to help us grieve because you got to sit around and tell stories and hear stories about him. You know, it's not, it's funny because it's not something I would have done, but he had started that film. I don't know if you knew that, but you know, Red Bull had come to him and said, Hey, we want to make a, 
movie of uh, your life. And I had always told him he should write a book. And he was like, fuck yeah, movie, not book. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. I'm not doing it. No, I'm not doing the book. But movie, yes. And um, so he had worked with the producer and the director for a while and, and kind of really given him the backstory. So, um, and he was really excited about it. And um, I, you know, I remember right after Jake's service, the, um, you know, Brian, the producer came up to me and said, uh, Ben Brian, sorry, Ben Brian was the producer. Ben came up to me. Yes, shout out, <laughs> big shout out said, hey, what do we do? And I said, let's make a fucking movie. That's what he wanted, you know? So I think that was in some ways hard because it was so fresh, but also healing in that, you know, you'd have his sisters tell their stories and friends tell their stories and, yeah. That's cool. And then, right, right as the pandemic restrictions started to lift, you could bring the snowboard community Mm -hmm. together. Yeah. It's somewhat cathartic, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you guys did a great job with that. It's fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. So, um, cool. I think it's a good time to get into hot takes. This is this is the rapid fire we talked about earlier. How rapid? I mean, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's choose your own adventure here. Uh, okay. You, you can elaborate if you'd like. Buzzer question. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's kind of semi-rapid fire, but no, if you okay. got to elaborate, you got space for that. It's long format. Okay. <laughs> so, first question, hard-hitting question, and and I always like to say it's almost like as it pertains to you. These questions are. I don't. It's not like it. Some people like to look at it like data and spreadsheets and like, wow, this <laughs> that's not me. Yeah, it's, <laughs> this is like how it pertains to you is how we like to take these. So, uh, the goat of snowboarding acronym would be greatest of all time. Uh, in your opinion, both male and female, who you got? Craig Kelly, Kelly Clark. Woo! That was good. The g- good linking there with the name. Yeah. Craig just Kelly, Kelly Clark. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I don't think anybody would be filming, uh, you know, making a living filming if it wasn't for Craig and just his passion. And what can you say about Kelly, the winningest snowboarder of all time, male or female? And, um, you know, the way she progressed women snowboarding nobody like her and the way she gives back now mm-hmm. yeah amazing human killer love that okay uh would you consider snowboarding an art form or a sport definitely both and um i don't know if you've ever read any um books by walter isaacson he 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 writes about creative genius like he wrote about steve jobs mm-hmm. and uh, he has one coming out about elon musk But anyway, his whole concept is that true creative geniuses don't differentiate between art and science, like us normal mortal humans do. (laughs) And um, that's how I see snowboarders as creative, the really good snowboarders as uh, creative geniuses. I mean, who would have looked at a picnic table and said, I'm going to slide that, you know, (laughs) or see the natural features or whatever and do that, so... Both, for sure. Uh, amazing. So uh, next question. Who do you believe is the uh, most underrated snowboarder in your eyes? You know, I'm going to say a category. I would say the adaptive snowboarders. I think that they're amazing and they don't get enough credit. Actually, the last trip in Jake and I did together um, in 2019 was to that big dome in uh, Holland, 
And we happened to be there when the Dutch adaptive team, and we got to meet Chris Voss and, um, yeah, <laughs> and his girlfriend, Lisa, I can never say her last name, Schottenheim. Anyway, watching them and what they're doing and doing it with the limita physical limitations that they have, or Amy Purdy, mm -hmm. you know, or Mike Schultz, shout out, shout out. Um, yeah, I would say as a group, they're under-recognized. Mm. Love it. Love that answer. Uh, next one, we do steel, as in rails, or powder. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, think uh, I think I think rails. Personally. Yeah, yeah like that's it. That's yeah. secret, secret <laughs> rail part dropping soon. <laughs> like, uh, you Powder. Know, a good back lip really gets me out of bed. <laughs> okay, uh, favorite or best style ever? Jake, especially through the trees. Great answer. Favorite method. I have to say Ross Powers, 2002. It took our breath away. Mm -hmm. yeah, he's shot out of a cannon on that one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, favorite snowboard video ever made? Well, plug, plug for Dear Rider. <laughs> That's a movie. <laughs> I guess more recently for a video, One World. Mm. That was a banger. Okay. Uh, favorite board graphic ever? You know, the board graphic, and this is funny, I was thinking about it because it has a naked, it's a naked woman, but um, <laughs> the one graphic I remember really sort of being, wow, to me was Nicola Toast's board, 2001. I don't know if you remember it. It was the edgiest fucking graphic, and it was very misty, had like a naked woman with a knife. <laughs> it was really, <laughs> and that was like, I was like, wow, like. We are not doing fucking rainbows and butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that board. Mm, cool. Um, if you go, do you go pants over the high back or under the high back? Over. Oh, over. Respect. Okay. Uh, dream heli trip. You take three people heli boarding. Anywhere, just good times, wiggling, pow, who you taking? Yeah, I've never been to Alaska. Wow. wow. I know. So that's high on my bucket list, and it would be my three sons. Mm. Keep their girlfriends away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <I'm kidding>. e <laughs> easy answer. Uh, dream sponsor. Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that one came quickly. I feel like I thought about that. We might be able to get that. We might be able to get a, an agent on that. I feel like that would be a collab opportunity. Yeah, like, there you go. <laughs> Might have a three-year docu-sign coming in the mail soon. <laughs> um, all right. And then last one, worst trend. What do you got? Worst trend in snowboarding? Yep. Jamie Salter. Am I on video right now? <laughs> Incredible. Okay. Are you going to explain that one yeah, to your listeners? Or? I mean, are, you're, you're, the, you're the one on It's not my duty to explain. Would you like to explain? Would you like to explain? I think we're looping back to being a privately owned company and the strength of uh, snowboarders and snowboard brands now. Yeah. I mean, Jamie Salter, you know, he, he was the first person to take a uh, snowboard company public. He took a ride public and big fucking mistake for the industry, you know. I mean... All those companies going public was a mistake, but then he's most recently, you know, I think he 
turns brands into zombie brands. And uh, he's just bought up a few more. Quicksilver, Roxy, Billabong. He already had Volcom. Yeah, zombie brands. Mm. So Jamie Salter, worst trend. Wow. You know, we've had people say things like that on air before and then had and had it taken out. So really cool to hear you say that. Uh, Who took it out? I'm I'm not going to say for their own. That's their that's their. Oh, they went. Oh, shit. I can't be. Yeah. We had an oh shit moment with somebody. No, no. I'll say it to his fucking face. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Well, we forgot uh, one section of the show uh, we forgot to do here is the pub beer crapshoot. So uh, what you got to do is roll that dice on the table. And I will tell you what you do. Let me grab my little sheet here. Uh, and go ahead and roll that. And uh, it's time to roll some dice for some cheap, fun beer presented by Pub Beer. No matter what you're doing, crack open a pub beer for some cheap fun. It's always a safe bet, responsibly, of course. Now go ahead and roll that, and we will tell you what you What do we got? Four? We got, oh, no, that's... Lucky seven. Seven. Uh, who's one of your favorite people to party with? Jake. <laughs> Obvious answer. Yep. Love that. Danny Davis. Danny Davis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we talk about his impersonations for a second? Oh Those my God. How good is he at that? Ridiculous. Oh my God. And you know, he impersonates people who like work for us <laughs> and it will just have us like rolling on the ground. <laughs> he's like, you're my stomach when he gets going. Totally. He's, he, when he hits that sweet spot where he's got like two or three drinks in him and he just, totally. and then he gets, he gets rolling like your stomach hurts from laughing so hard. <laughs> Yeah, his Mar- his McMore- McMo impersonation hits. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, his sparky one good, is good. All right, we got a few more things left here. Uh, we always like to ask about our guest snowboard setup. So what are you riding? How do you set it up? Tell us about it. So I've always pretty much been a camber girl, and uh, my favorite boards are the Talent Scout, Storyboard, Storyboard. Uh, Step-on bindings. Now, I know there's mixed feelings about step-ons, but I think they um, they were life-changing for me. You know, I'd love to tell you the story of step-on, how it happened. Absolutely. And, you know, Jake was, I think he was 59 years old at the time, and he was snowboarding with our head engineer. And he said, dude, I'm almost 60. I've been bending over <laughs> for 40 fucking years. I don't want to do it anymore but I want the same feel as my buckle bindings. We were four and a half years in R&D, which is incredible. So I think for me, they've been life-changing, and I use them in all conditions. Mm. Uh, are you guys selling a bunch of those? Mm, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> the demand's crazy. Yeah. Still still growing. I've heard that from just like, you know, friends and uh, um, through, across different places Makes saying sense. that, um, a lot of their parents have gotten back involved because they couldn't do the they couldn't bend over anymore yeah. and step ons allowed them to take up snowboarding. Oh, you again. know when we um, kept Kimmy on contract, she didn't she promoted them as pregnant. You oh, can, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Smart. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, another mistake I think we made over the years was having a proprietary binding system and everybody had their own fucking proprietary binding system and it really confused the consumer and stuff. 
So we're really hoping that our step-on system, you know, we're licensing it out, not for a lot of money or whatever, make it affordable so that um, the other companies, I mean, I don't think it's going to go all step-on, right? I think there's always going to be a market for strap bindings, um, but make it simple for the consumer. Keep it the same system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then uh, stance and angles, how do you like to set up your board? Yeah, I, you know, when we started, it was like this. Posy posy. Yeah. (laughs) And having kids, my boys would be like, okay, mom, slowly (laughs) I would be turning. So I think I'm like a 12, negative three, negative six, pretty reference stance. Cool. That's awesome. Amazing. So what's, uh, what's next for Donna Carpenter? Oh, what's next for me? Um, you know, I think I mentioned really the focus on the future of the sport and what competition looks like, what, you know, what does life under the FIS look like? How do we get the riders to drive it? Um, I think for Jake's legacy, we've got to stay really focused on innovation and making sure we're committing enough resources to long-term innovation and not just tweaking the product that we have, but really thinking about what what the rider's going to need. Um, yeah, and then I think one of the things I wasn't doing right after Jake died that I'm committed to doing now is having more fun in my life. Um, you know, he was always, he was kind of the fun guy and it was easy just to follow. Like, yeah, fuck, I'll follow you wherever you go. And it's, I know it's going to be fun, you know? So I think I'm really committed to doing like more snowboarding trips with my family and with my senior team and just having some fucking fun. Heck yeah. Well said. All right. One thing we always do before we get out of here too is, uh, thank yous. Do you want to throw out any thank yous? Thank you. Chris, I think this was amazing. I think what you're doing for snowboarding is amazing. Having these real conversations, in-depth conversations. Um, So thank you. Thank you, Mary. You made me feel so comfortable because we're like friends. So (laughs) thank you for being here. And thank you for all you do for snowboarding. Incredible. You're going to be the guest soon. (laughs) (laughs) This side is so nice, though, and I just get to ask the questions. It seems mellower. (laughs) Yeah, safer. Cool. Uh, Mary, you want to throw the question up? Yeah, so I think um, this is something that I'm sure a lot of people reach out to you and ask, And but if you uh, had, I was wondering if you could offer any advice for um, women and, and guys too, but um, you know, women who are wanting to get into the industry side of things and how to find their path or you know, break in. Or um, one thing is, I, I hear from women who are like, "I'm trying, I'm kind of getting there, but I keep hitting hurdles." So maybe they're on their early parts of their journey. But what kind of advice would you give for them to keep pursuing being a part of this industry? Yeah, you know, there's nothing that makes me happier. I was recently getting, um, I was doing an interview for ESPN, and the camera woman, I said, wow, that's cool, it's a camera woman. She put the camera down, and she said, you know I'm in this industry because of you, because I heard you speak five years ago somewhere. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't think of anything more rewarding. I do have posted on our website my 13 career tips, 
um, somebody can look up that I spent a lot of time thinking about. But when I think about my career and kind of what propelled it and what made it successful was always thinking about what the company needed, right? Like I knew the strengths that I had. I knew what I could bring to the table, but you've got to match that with whatever organization you're working for. And the people that I've seen be really like women at Burton that I've seen be really successful are guys too. They've seen an opportunity, right? They say, you know, I've got this strength and I see Burton has this opportunity. I'm going to align those two. So you can't do your kind of development goals in a vacuum. You know, you can say, okay, I want to work for this organization. Where do they want to get and how could I help them get there? And I try to wake up every morning and say, all right, what am I doing to help this company progress? Not what am I getting out of it? Right. I mean, I want to align what I'm good at, what I like to do, but really focusing on whatever company it is you want to work for, what they need. Does that make sense? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Working toward the greater good is going to benefit benefit yeah. yourself by giving that for sure. That makes that's great advice. Yeah. And I always tell people when they have like a five year career plan, rip it up, throw it away, burn it. Fuck it. It's not going to do you any good because things change and you are, the, you know, the goal is to see opportunity. Totally. Drop the expectations, increase the motivation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's so good. And, uh, my, my girlfriend shared this quote with me this morning. She's like, oh, it has some app or whatever, but I thought it was, kind of applies exactly to what you, you say. And she's just like, damn, this kind of hit me this morning. We said, givers advance the group. Takers advance themselves and hold the group back. Yeah. And it's kind of like what I heard was like, be a giver. Yeah. 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 And, you know, within that, know what you like to do, mm -hmm. what you're good at. I mean, I think for too long there was kind of a focus on, oh, let's build up your weaknesses. No, fuck that. Just focus on your strengths, what you're good at, and how you, how can you align that with how where your organization's going or wants to go. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> and if anyone tries to, you know, put a hurdle up, you got the middle finger. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> no, really, you cannot. No, but, you know, that's really part of not taking things personally. Yeah. The four agreements, right? Like, you have zero control what somebody does or thinks about you or whatever. Why spend an ounce of energy thinking about it? Yep. Mm. Damn, you are Miyagi in us right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. On that note, I think it's been, it's been a hell of a show. Donna, thank you so much for coming on. We, we really appreciate you coming and sharing your story. I feel inspired right now. I want to bottle this up and take it with me. This was actually fun. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. You said that like you didn't think it would be fun. You know? <laughs> Even the salt thing, smelling salt, salt thing, wasn't as bad as I thought no, it was going to be. Great product, actually. Run through all Salts, bombhole.com, pick them up. No, it's been fun, and you've been a pleasure to chat with. So, thank you so much for everything you've done for snowboarding. I want to say that on behalf of snowboarding, like we are all in debt to you and the, the ground, the road you've paved for all of us. So, thank you so yeah. much. Thank you guys. Yeah, and I double up on that. Thank you for all of snowboarding, the women in snowboarding, and you know, thank you both for having me in this discussion with you. It was so fun. And, you know, the stories and the wisdom that you shared today are, are so meaningful. And, um, I hope that I'm going to walk away with a lot from it, just like you said. So mm -hmm. hopefully everyone listening does too.
Cool. Thank you. Lastly, we got to throw a shout out to our boy Silk D with the Yay, mullet Silk. back there. A pleasure. Nice it was an work, honor. Silk. This was a great episode. Yeah, hair, also, hair's looking phenomenal, yeah. by the way. Thank you. We got to get the. You. Maybe you could do a, myself. a product uh, description of what you use to get it looking <laughs> like this. Do you guys have Just a hair, water. like a hair gel sponsor? <laughs> no, don't say that. Like, wait till you get the sponsor and then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, insert company here. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, and then, uh, lastly, everybody that tunes in, listens, the snowboard community, uh, it's a beautiful place to be. So, uh, we appreciate you guys, all the sponsors, everybody that listens, all of snowboarding. Thank you guys over and out from the bomb hole.